We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. What up, Gator Nation? Welcome to the podcast. My name is Alan Williams, sitting right here with James DiVirgilio, the man, the myth, the legend. You guys love him. Wow, what a freaking game. Amazing. Unbelievable. So, so much to talk about. Walked in today and said, you know what? We always are talking about Gator football is nothing if not incredibly fascinating. James, how are you doing right now? How are you feeling? I feel good. This is the most excited I have been to do a podcast since I came on the podcast and Will Greer, as we were about to record, wow, was suspended for PEDs. I actually said to you, Alan, 10 minutes ago before we pressed the record button, I said, Alan, is there any news that I should know of? Is Kyle Trask <laughs> testing positive for something? Or did he break something else? Because I need to know. Because the last time I was this hyped was then. And here wow. I am. We're going we're gonna to put that in context. That's certainly you know, no disrespect to Felipe Franks, of course. We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll walk through that. Um, this is not to, to celebrate you know, a travesty for someone else. But since this show is analytical and it's talking about our own emotions and feelings, that's how I feel. I'm, wow. feeling, I'm right. feeling amped. I'm hyped. I know you're also hyped about our patrons. I could not be more hyped. I keep thinking each week that maybe I'll get less hyped, but I'm not. I'm more hyped every week. Each week, I love it. So when we get a new patron on Patreon, I get an email notification, and it's like Christmas every day. It gives me this little, it gives me the fiesta emoji, right, the celebration emoji, and it's like, look, you have a new patron. But if you like the content, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, most importantly, become a patron on Patreon. We love our patrons. We had several new patrons this week. We had an extra large dono from Jeffrey E. Welcome. Jeffrey E., appreciate Welcome. you. Ozzy Mutz, a large dono. Thanks so much. Ozzy, one of the Mutz clan. I don't know how many Mutzes we have now. Infinite. There's a lot of them, but we appreciate all of you. Uh, and then a couple of small donos from Good Gator of the Swamp Message Board. And what's fun about this is you don't have to give your real name. So if you want to give your stage name like Good Gator of the Swamp Message Board, also named Joseph, you can do that. And then a, a dono from Robert Curry. Thank you so much for coming on board. All of you, uh, except for Ozzy, are first-time donors, which is pretty legit. And then we have to deal with the council, the council of power, if you will, the council of honor, 
the legends of the Gator Nation football podcast. There is only one main legend. His name is Alexander Leventhal. You all know him, love him, hate him. Uh, He's the king. But we've had a challenger that continually is rising. And in fact, this is a better game than Alexander Leventhal knows. As some of you know, if you are on the throne and someone surpasses you, we let you know. And you get a notice that says you are dethroned, essentially. And the number one challenger, Diego Rivera, dethroned Alexander Leventhal, along with another challenger at the time. And Diego has remained there, challenging him each and every week, trying to sort of, on on eBay, if you used eBay back in the day, figure out what Alexander's contribution level is. <laughs> it's a great battle between these two. So you've got you've got I your throne it. commander, Alexander Leventhal, and you've got Diego Rivera coming in hot. It's a very Game of Thrones type situation. As here. the number one challenger. And, and we certainly... You know, love it. We like celebrating you guys for that. We appreciate the support. It's tremendous. But aside from the throne, we also have a bunch of other amazing people that are supporting us. And we love to give you all love and shout outs as well. This week, I have the honor of reading off some of our long-standing esteemed patrons. We have uh, Jack Lanati, James Davis. It's a great first name there, James. Jamie Wagner. Jeff, the artist, I guess, formerly known as Jeff. Then Jeffrey Hoy. What long, up? Longtime fan of the podcast. Personal friend, Jeffrey Hoy. Jeremy Bloor, Joel Whitehead, John yeah. Araby, Joseph Pecaro. I'm sure I'm getting some of your names wrong, and feel free to hammer me on Reddit or elsewhere. Uh, Kathleen Smith, Keith Coppenhaver, Kip Hop, Kyle Keaton, Kyle Moore, Logan Wild. What up, Logan? Uh, Mark Chimalarski. That's definitely wrong. Mark Raglan. Hey, Mark Raglan. Matthew Mitchell. Michael Varamontes and Mike Davis. Long time friend in a fancy league with both James and I. Mike Davis, what up, dude? And so virtually all those names I just read have been supporters from the beginning of when we came on Patreon. So we spend a good amount of time each show kind of joking but not so joking about donos and hundo bombs and XL donos and Patreons. But really, truly, we always thank all of you guys because, again, uh, it means a ton. We really appreciate the support. In fact, this past week, Alan... I had the opportunity to catch a Reddit thread someone had sent to me about the UT Martin game, and there was a tremendous write-up by this guy by the name, I think, of Punter U, who had wrote up our UT Martin pod, and there were a lot of really tremendously great comments about how much people appreciated the show and the breakdown and the analysis. Uh, It does take Alan and I quite a bit of time. I spend half my Sunday and almost all of my Monday prepping, uh, but it's always worth it, and I can assure you it wouldn't be worth it if we didn't have people like you listening and supporting and enjoying what we do. Uh, so thank you. We appreciate that. We start every show with those thank yous. If you're new to the show and you're and you're here for the first time, welcome to the pod. This is going to be an incredible episode for you to take in. This, I think, Alan, despite all the epic episodes we've had with regards to content, might be one of the most interesting. It's the culmination of sort of everything we do and have done. There is just a lot to uncover. Oh, so much. Let's get started. I mean, before we get into the details, we always want to talk about how we're feeling or what the game how the game had an impact on us so what was your experience of this game i came into the game like i have come into a lot of games recently where i'm just sort of flat i'm like here we've got felipe franks i don't love the way he plays quarterback i don't love how he chooses to be emotive and we have kentucky which is historically a blah opponent but as we said on the podcast this kentucky team fired up vegas sets lines based upon past history they played us close i was a little nervous about what may have happened. And then of course that reached like rock bottom Uh, midway through the second quarter. I'm sending texts to my text group. Well, now we definitively know where we stand this year. 
Uh, Franks is certainly not going to be the guy we want him to be, and this team is not going to reach any kind of ceiling height we wanted. This is going to be another maybe nine win season, ten win season where nothing, you know, no banners are hung, right? And then it's twenty-one to ten, Allen. And I can tell you what my experience is, but as at this point in time, I'm just I'm at my lowest. We're at the house. We got a lot of people at my house, and the mood is just is funeral level sad, right? This is just not only are we going to lose, we're going to get trounced. Kentucky's driving. It's going to be twenty-eight to ten. We're going to get run out of the building by Kentucky, a team that has hardly any starters returning, a brand new quarterback from Troy. It felt so so bad, and I think. In the back of my mind, Alan, I'm beginning to wonder, is this the Dan Mullen I've been talking about on the podcast? Is this what we're sticking with? Can anything be done to turn this game around? Can we have some sort of comeback? So I want to ask you, Alan, at this moment in time in the game, 21-10, what were you feeling? I know you were away on a retreat. This is pretty wild. I was feeling oddly calm because I'm watching the game on a delay. I don't know what happened. But of course, anytime you're watching the game on a delay, it sucks. I know people around me know the score, and I also know that it's it's taking a long time to finish before we can watch it on replay, and so it must be close. So I don't know if we're going to win or lose at this point, but I'm like, I, something happens, I think, because the game isn't over yet. Uh, it was a pretty weird experience, and so some of the emotion sucked out, but it was... I'm, I don't know. It was kind of hopeful the whole time. I didn't experience the pits of despair as you did. Uh, but then watching us come back was still truly magical. Uh, that was one of the stranger games I've watched as a Gator fan. And we've had a large number of those over the last five years because we're not blowing people out Urban, Miles, Urban Meyer, Steve Spurrier style. So one, though, to a Hall of Fame kind of level crazy game this was. Um, I don't know what. How did you rebound after that twenty-one ten mark? Well, we're twenty-one ten, and and you know we we just had the Sean Davis pick to save us from like maybe the lowest low, right? That was the lowest low, and then it hit an even lower low because here you are on the twenty-five thirty yard line, fourth down, we can't convert. You see Frank's go to run, and then immediately you see just that gruesome shot. Where if you've played any sports at all, or you've watched enough football, you know that is that is what you don't want to see: just body, chest going one way, legs going another. So gruesome, of course, TV doesn't want to show it. You know that he's going to be out for a long time. And then it's Kentucky's football. And at that point in time, I want to pause right here and say two very important things. One, you really feel for Franks. As much as I on this podcast have said about Franks' play or his demeanor or other things, never in a million years do you want someone to get injured, especially injured like that. I mean, period. He's, he's, a, he's a human being. He's trying his best out there, you know, right? He's never trying to lose for Florida or, or make mistakes for Florida. And as you mentioned correctly, Alan, he's giving everything he had on fourth down. Whether that's the right read or not, his decision is to sell out and try to get that first down, which he didn't get. And ultimately it cost him, you know, it cost him a dislocated ankle and a broken ankle. It cost him a serious injury in the rest of his season. So hats off to him for giving everything he has. And he's always given everything he has for Florida, right? So I think let me just say that because oftentimes on this show we're so analytical you can feel like, wow, maybe they just don't like these people or, or they just feel negative. It's not, it's not negative or positive. It's simply analytics. But this is a human story where you always feel for a guy who's going to deal with the emotional complexity of this kind of injury at this point in time when he's still a young man. Yeah, you see some of the quotes uh, from the other guys on the team after the game, and they have a ton of respect for him. The way he does 
like leave it out there in the field and really go after willing to take a hit in the pocket if he has to running really aggressively on some of these QB keepers or a scramble like that. I think you saw the response from those guys when he's hurt and laying down there. I mean, I think the entire team was out there huddled around him. So I think that shows a lot of how they respect him. Maybe, of course, I'm sure that they would want him to play better at times, but obviously those guys have a ton of affection for him and care for him and respect for him as a competitor. And so then, Alan, something that I think probably happened to a lot of you, although maybe it's too soon to say this, once you recognize Franks is out, there's a part of me that says we could win this game now because what we needed in that game was a change. We needed a shift, right? Franks had given you all he had up until that point, and it was not enough, and they had just stopped us on fourth down. Kentucky's game plan to this point had been perfect for stopping the kind of offense we were running. It was not fluky with how well they were doing, and we were in trouble. We got a huge lift potentially from a change. And a lot of times that change fizzles out and you just lose the game. But you do always get the lift. This is a new ray of hope. If you look in your life when something tragic happens, if something different happens, you for a second anchor yourself to this newness, right? And Trask, of course, is that newness. And Alan, interestingly enough, it comes off the heels of last week's analysis of Trask, knowing what he did well going up against the Kentucky secondary, who's depleted. At this point in time, they had lost a guy due to targeting and they had an injury. So they are way depleted from way a down. secondary that was already brand new. And in comes, I think, our best passer, who we've said before, into the game. So there is some hope. And then what happens is the most entertaining quarter of football I have watched since Will Greer. I loved it. We're, we're I mean, our group is standing up. We're high-fiving. We're celebrating. We're into it. There was this level of excitement that I just haven't had in a long time. We've won some games. We've done some things. But the way the football was being played the entertainment value brought on the screen, the timeliness of the passes changed the complexion of this game. So what I want to ask you now, Alan, is something that's been asked to me multiple times in the past two days. Do you think we would have won the game if Franks had stayed in the game? My gut says no. Now, we've seen Franks lead us to some comebacks, South Carolina, Vanderbilt. You know, Plenty of times this team has faced some adversity and come back through since last year's Kentucky game. So I don't think it would have been impossible. But the way Kentucky was playing with our current set of circumstances, with offensive line not being able to open up the kind of running lanes we would want to with Felipe under center, I think it had to be something really different, and that something could have been Kyle Trask. Now, you could have done something radical with other kinds of personnel or other kinds of weird things, but... Kyle Trask coming in against that particular defense in that situation was exactly what we needed. And it was incredible to watch him work right off the bat, slicing and dicing Kentucky's depleted secondary. It was special. I mean, don't don't sleep on that performance. What Trask did was special. Could Franks have led us to a comeback? Almost certainly no. Our good friend, a uh, guy I go to church with, actually said to me on Sunday, Kentucky grad, right, an undergrad, like lifelong Kentucky fan, said as soon as Franks came out, he lives in Gainesville, so he follows the Gators closely. As soon as Franks came out, he thought, oh, no, this is this is the only way they could beat us right now. And I think if you watch the game and you're being honest with yourself, we were in a world of trouble. They, like we said, those were not fluky stats. We were having a very hard time moving the ball. We had absolutely no running game. 
uh, our offensive line's getting obliterated. Franks does not excel in the quick release game. If he does not see his first read, he's escaping the pocket, which was not working for him tremendously well in this game. We're getting called for holding. We're struggling. So to not give Trask the credit he deserves here would be a disservice to Trask. And when we get to the film breakdown, we're going to tell you just how good he was. Because as hard as this may be to believe, Alan, Trask was even better on film than he looked when you watched it in person. Yeah, once you got through the emotion of all the hype of the comeback, when we actually looked at it, I was extremely impressed. Let me ask you this question about being impressive. Were you impressed at all with Kentucky in this game? Extremely impressed with Kentucky. Uh, We came into it saying we needed to blow them out to prove that we were any kind of real contender in the season. And I think that's true. I think uh, Kentucky, as you like to say, Alan, is like a gatekeeper team this season. They're good enough to give it to you if you're unable to do uh, all things well. And that's that's the sign of a program. Stoops has talked a lot about that. They are competitive in most of the games they play, minus playing the royalty of the SEC. And they were competitive here. Uh, it was exactly a lot of what we said uh, with how they were going to run offense and what they were going to do on defense. But they executed, and they executed well in high-leverage moments. They put us on the ropes. They had us even with that late field goal that they wind up missing. They gave us everything we could handle and then some. And to have a team that had only eight returning starters who was that much talent to the NFL to come into a Florida team that's supposed to be at least as good as last year's team and basically have them in the same exact position we were in. Last year, we were down 21-17. This year, we're down 21-16. Virtually identical situation, except this year, in comes Trask and we take the victory. So I was impressed with Kentucky. I am impressed with where they have that program right now. Are they going to reach the heights Kentucky fans want? Probably not. Maybe debatable. But really good roster management. And, and honestly, Alan, a massive quarterback pickup for them was Sawyer Smith. Make no mistake about it. If he's not there, this game is not what it was. He played an excellent game in a tough spot. Yeah, this goes to show me Kentucky is a more legit program. Often you'll see maybe they'll reach a peak and then they plummet because the guys who got them there left and they lost a lot of their stars, a lot of the formative pieces of, that, of last year's team. And they're still competitive. Now, I don't think we played our best game, but they're getting the most out of that roster right now. And maybe that's not enough if you're a Kentucky fan. Maybe you want higher than highs. But from a neutral kind of observer, I was very impressed. Sawyer Smith played a, an excellent game. Now he threw some interceptions. He's not an all-world quarterback. But they made us pay in certain situations. We weren't up to the task, either on offense or defense. They definitely made us pay. And... You know, they did give up a big fourth quarter lead, and they've done that some. I understand. I'm sure there's a lot of Kentucky fans who are frustrated. But this is not going to be, as long as Mark Stoops is there, I think, at least for the next few years, they're not going to be a doormat. This is going to be a tough game every year. Now, if we hit our ceiling, we should still beat them almost every time. But they're not, this isn't like Vanderbilt of the 90s or Kentucky of the you know, late 90s or whatever, where they're just trash and you could roll out your second string. You don't even need to practice and you can beat them. They're a tough, legit opponent. And that's going to be true, I think, year in and out. So that's going to be on the game of the schedule where you can't just go, okay, we're playing this team, this team, Kentucky, whatever. We're going to have to show up each week. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's at least another interesting game on the schedule for us. Uh, James, you ready to talk about the offense? Let's get into it. I'm ready. Let's go. All right. <laughs> uh, this is funny because I think – so much of what we talked about actually came to fruition here. Um, that's a lot of credit to you. They did play a lot of nickel cover too. Um, so James, how was that effective against us? 
Well, it wound up being extremely effective. And in fact, how much nickel cover two did they play? And again, if you're newer to the show, what's a nickel cover two? A nickel is when you take out a linebacker. So you take your third linebacker out and instead you put a defensive back in, right? And in our team, that's traditionally, you know, last year, Chauncey Gardner, um, not last year, Chauncey Gardner. Yes, last year, last Chauncey. Chauncey Gardner. Yeah, there you go. All of a sudden, I'm thinking Duke Dawson, but that's two years ago. Get my times confused. Uh, last year, Chauncey Gardner. This year, Trey Dean, right, for us. So you bring you bring another defensive back in. And in order to do that, you're covering basically our base set, which is a three-receiver set, one running back set. They spent almost the entire game in a cover two. Two safeties deep, nickel across the board. They did not change up looks. They did not mix up what they were doing. They were very confident in how they were going to stop us. And what they actually did, which is different, entirely different from what Miami did, is they were very comfortable, Allen, starting down one in the run numbers. And so if you're going to count in the box, how many players are in the box? Let's say we have eight. They were always comfortable having one less. So they would leave their safety in a rather normal starting safety spot, and they were comfortable that their line could hold us enough that he could come late to make those numbers equal, which was giving them a chance to always remain in cover two, balanced against our passing attack, and then undermanned against our running attack. And that obviously worked extremely well if you were unable to run the ball against that. And, and that, that remained for the entire game. There was very little they ever did to disguise, change, or do anything that was even remotely confusing, which indicates A, they had to be simple because they don't have veteran talent on the back end, and B, they were having a lot of success with that. So why change up? Secondly, they did a fantastic job of knowing several of our play sets. Right. When you and I went through Phil Mellon, there are at least six or seven plays in the game when either one of their strong safeties or their linebackers goes to the play position before it even happens. They're already flowing ball side before the ball is even snapped. They basically know what play is going to happen before it happened. So tremendous job by the Kentucky coaching staff on their offense. Uh, I mean, on their defense against our offense. I thought they really won that battle chess match-wise. We played the clip from Dan Mullen. They outdid Dan Mullen in this game for a large portion of it. They were definitely outcoaching him when it came to scheme versus scheme. And the crazy part was, Alan, they weren't even really changing their scheme. Right. Well, this is what is interesting to me because you mentioned, you know, Mark Stoops is a primarily a defensive back coach in his background. Maybe they're going to do something, some strange, confusing things on the back end, you know, using a robber, playing some weird zones. And they didn't do any of that until very late when they were desperate to limit Trask. And so that was so effective. And they were using a little bit of even what UT Martin was doing is using that linebacker putting him out into kind of normally you would say no man's land, but confident that he could get back into the play and present a heavier look against our run game. And our offensive line is not of effective enough, even running into some of those fronts where you would think you have an advantage in reality. You don't because they are willing to gamble with that safety. And if you're not going to punish them, they're going to keep doing that over and over again. And they, like you said, they're having a lot of success. You know, we we tried to combat that a little bit by using some of these three wide receiver sets to block. Now, if you see Hammond or uh, Grimes or even Copeland in tight in some of these bunch formations, and having these wide receivers try and block some of their defensive linemen or linebackers was a fail. They abused that. We So we were trying to counter by keeping some of those wide receivers on the field and still maintain an edge in the run game, and we couldn't. They obliterate us doing that. 
So yeah, and Alan, one thing that's interesting is that was our main actual game plan. If you wanted to say what was our wrinkle we added in right. each week, that was it. We ran that play a ton of different times and had almost no success on yeah, it. Yeah, very early on you saw it a lot. Very, very little success. And then secondarily, uh, we actually did open with a lot of middle breaking routes. We had a concerted effort to attack with middle breaking routes. And there's no doubt that Mark Stoops anticipated that. Those linebackers were getting depth. They were covering those lanes. They were not going to allow us to hit easy drag routes over the middle. So again, the chess match, the game theory we looked at last week came to fruition. And Mark Stoops won that round. He accurately predicted what we were going to do. His game plan was ready to take away what we wanted to run. And he even one-upped us by doing what UT Martin did, was basically putting their linebacker in a spot where he can't guard both people. But it's enough to mess with a guy like Frank's to where he takes away the spacing he wants, messes up his read, and slows him down successfully. So excellent, excellent job by them. Our game plan absolutely did not work against their game plan, and that's what caused a lot of problems. Now, there were some things we did successfully, Alan. Yeah, but even before we get to that, I just want to say, you know, before we, I've accused the the coaching staff of being conservative or stubborn with the run game. I don't think they were doing that this game. I think they were trying to get us into these right looks, and we weren't running into overly heavy fronts stupidly. This is what Kentucky was giving us, and we still couldn't take advantage of that in the run game because they were gambling with their safety, with their linebackers. And it was gonna ha- we were going to have to pass them out of that, which we were not able to do. So eventually, we you're right, we were successful. What did we do? Well, I think it's funny you stole what I was going to try to bridge in there. Okay. I didn't have it in the notes, but you you did it very nicely. I, I was going to say that we were we were actually successful in running with the numbers, and that's a question I know I got a lot: is were we running into bad fronts? No, we were not. In fact, we were running into fronts we should be able to run against every single time. You could have argued we should have run almost every play, but at some point in time, when you're having no success, you have to try other things. That's 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 not good for you if you can't beat a team's base defense. If you can't get them to modify something, they are winning. And that's what was going on in this game. Whereas we talk about our defense, they were making us adjust out of our base defense, which means they were winning that battle, right? So in the second half, we clearly abandoned the three receiver bunch. We ran it maybe twice after running it a ton of times in the first half. We also changed out who was blocking. Occasionally, Alan, something we should talk about here. I'm not sure what's going on with the coaching of the receivers or tight end blocking situations, but there's too many times when they're supposed to be blocking a guy to a certain direction that they take the wrong step or they use really poor technique. These are rather basic things I'd like to see us clean up, especially at this point in time in the season. So keep an eye on that. But we were primarily successful by Trask coming in. I mean, there's no other way to say this. We did make a switch offensive line-wise. We took DeLance out. Right, put garage in at left tackle and then foresight to and right then they tackle. Went back when that wasn't working. But they were and trying they, they something. They tried things. They're trying things. They're grasping at straws. Please help shore this up. But what changed the game was Trask came in. That was where our success came in. Our success is this crazy situation where your guy gets injured for the year, which is not what anyone wants to have happen. But that creates an opportunity for someone else to come in, and that person takes advantage of it and changes the game. So it's hard to give the coaching staff credit for this, especially because from what we could see, the play calling did not change. There was no difference in play calling. And in fact, here's the kicker. When Trask came in, Kentucky already was reversed to loading up on the pass. So in the beginning of the game, they were one under the run number. They got so bold later on with Franks that they were actually two up sometimes in the passing number. So they were predicting our passing downs and they were playing with two extra pass defenders 
On the weak side, they'd have a guy manning Van Jefferson and a safety over top of him. And on our strong side, they would have four guys versus our three. And we still couldn't run the ball. So in comes Trask, and they don't change that mentality. They're still ready to play the pass. So not a fundamental change. In fact, Mark Stoops said as much, Alan. We knew when Trask came in, he was a passer. So what does that tell you? That tells you Trask came in and succeeded despite our coaching staff knowing what's going on, our coaching staff not going to some crazy different game plans. It's not all of a sudden we started pulling the governor off and throwing wild passes. The same place we've been running and seeing on film week in and week out, Allen, worked because of the timing of the quarterback, which changed the game. So our biggest success is hard to give maybe the coaching staff credit for directly, indirectly, preparation of Trask for the moment definitely goes to them. For sure. And I don't think you can say enough about him being ready for that moment. He came in in a really tight situation. He didn't look nervous or scared. He came in the previous week in a weird spot, performed well, and performed incredibly well immediately. I mean, his first pass was awesome. I think it was it maybe Will even our the immortal Will Greer, his first time in the game, I think his first, you know, plays a gator like threw the ball in the dirt, which I would totally expect anyone to be like, oh man, this is a crazy moment. I gotta get the jitters out. But he came in and I don't know, looked excellent immediately. I will say though, if you look at the run pass splits, um, once Trask came in, we threw the ball almost every time. We were like, we cannot run the ball. Trask is going to have to throw it. I mean, the only runs for the most part were basically QB design draws. And we did run it a few times, but we're like, we're going to have to beat them throwing the ball. I think we're running the ball just to keep them honest or see if we could sneak one through. So they did start saying, okay, this isn't working. Trask is. Let's hammer this and give him credit for sticking with that and not going, oh, man, we have a backup quarterback in. we got to maybe protect him. They're like, if we're going to win, he's going to have to throw, and they let him do it. We're going to have a full breakdown here on the quarterbacks in a minute, but first let's talk about where we struggled. Are you concerned? Obviously, yes, but how concerned maybe are you? 60 yards rushing in this game. Yeah, that's until, really bad. Until Hammond took the final carry for 73. Right. 60 yards rushing the ball against a Kentucky front that was not known coming into the game to be a fearsome front against the run. And they're a decently, they got some size, and so they're not guys you're going to push around. And we're not technical enough at all to combat that. And you know our physicality is probably our, our biggest strength in terms of these guys because they're not small dudes, our offensive line. But they miss on so many of the details. So many of the details. And again, we've said this a lot. There's a lot of times the right play is called. We we have them in the right look. We miss a key block. Something happens. And the play is nullified or doesn't go for what it should have gone. And a lot of that is blocking up front, either from a tight end or offensive lineman. This is frustrating because I, I love Pirine. I love how he played last year. I love having him in there in the passing game, but whatever combination of him and the lineman is not working, I would love to see us try a little bit different stuff. Let's give Pierce some more carries. Let's give Malik Davis some carries who ran well behind a depleted offensive line two years ago. Whatever we're doing is not working, and I'm not hopeful that it's going to start working magically well unless teams are having to account so heavily for us passing the ball. We'll see what happens in the next couple weeks with that. But a play that stands out that everybody saw stone forsyth our left tackle uh, he might have been at right tackle at that moment but running out there it's just him and a defensive back and p ryan if he picks up that block i mean he's trying to block a guy he's like 150 pounds at least over 
misses, somehow the defensive back still tackles P. Ryan. If you know, P. Ryan is able to get around him, he's going to run for at least 15 more yards. Right play call, almost the right execution, missing the key detail, and nothing really happens. And we saw that over and over again when you watch the film of the running game. And that's indicative of both P. Ryan and Forsyth, because you could argue, A, P. Ryan could have been more true. aggressive and, and made a guy miss. But B, Forsyth, you dream of that moment as an O-lineman. You're out there in the flat. You've, you've waited your life for this. You've got a full head of steam, and you've got some tiny little corner in your way and a lot of grass. And you know your running back is going behind you. This is one on a film session on Sunday or Monday. The coach pulls this up, and you just destroy this guy into the bench, right? And what does Forsyth do? He takes a couple little weird juke steps and just kind of half-heartedly lays on the guy. I mean, you take your best shot right there. Confusing as to why in that moment he chose to be so conservative. And then P. Ryan just sort of, you know, kind of wondering what fourth is going to do. He just stutter steps into that guy. And now instead of us having a highlight, that corner's got a life highlight of how he evaded a 320-pound lineman and also tackled a running back. But I'm with you, Alan. P. Ryan, he's probably the most stable running back we have. I think he's going to hit the right hole more often than not. But the way things are right now, Pierce is the battering ram. I think it might be good to give the battering ram some carries because if he can get a little clearance, he's probably going to get more than P. Ryan is. But whatever's going on right now, the biggest takeaway for me from this game with the O-line, Allen, was this is more of what we feared. A lot of times there was one guy messing up in the previous games. There were multiple. You couldn't just say, well, if we'd gotten this block, that would have been a good play because that wasn't true because somebody else was also missing their block. And that happened on almost every play. So to think that that's going to get fixed this week would be false expectations. However, if you're also pressing the full-on panic button, that's because you had too high of expectations coming into the season. This is what an offensive line of this caliber should look like at times. It's compounded by the fact that Franks' ball timing is not good, which does not give them a chance to get in any kind of rhythm. And we saw some of that improve with Trask, but this was a horrific game for the offensive line, a horrific game for the tight ends and wide receivers from blocking almost nobody had a really solid game. Very, very bad. Definitely concerning. Again, something we mentioned as being our biggest concern coming into the season. And it showed up here. So, something to watch for. Secondarily, Alan, I want to talk about our passing play design. I have some frustrations with this. I've had it before. We talked about before the season. I was hoping that Dan Mullen would institute some more vertical concepts, some more two-on-one-ing of safeties, some more downfield attacking We not only are not really doing that ever on film, we're also continually falling into some very predictable habits. One we talked about against Tennessee Martin last week. We love to run sort of either an out or a flat route with a corner above it. And in fact, we hit this early in the game to Kyle Pitts. It was a one read throw from Franks. He hits that pass. It's very nice. We run it so often that teams are basically robbing it or triple covering it or they know when it's coming. There's multiple times on film when the same exact thing happened when Franks is in the game. And I think that could be because Franks feels comfortable throwing that. But regardless, there's a lot of times on film where if we had run a different route combo, we would have a guy wide open. Kentucky played a lot of underneath zone. They played a lot of man and a lot of underneath zone with their linebackers. I question some of the play design. I'm very curious to see if we change some of that. That'll be interesting. Now that you have a very willing over-the-middle thrower like Trask, And in fact, of course, he did hit several over-the-middle throws. I'm hopeful that we change some of that. So I'm going to hold off judgment on what's going on with that right now. I'm going to say that like we identified on film, Franks is not good at it, so they limit it. 
Let's see what happens there. But there were a lot of opportunities in this game to where we could have done a lot more of that uh, with some different combos. But I'd still love to see us be a little bit more vertical-oriented with our attack. Although Kentucky was in too deep, there were there were ways to attack them because, Alan, they struggled to cover given all that newness out there. We didn't do a whole lot to prevent them with any kind of confusion with our routes. Um, okay, play calling into points. This happened again. The first Swain touchdown... We can't really give credit as to play calling into points. That was a very normal set, and they just busted their coverage. It's like Kentucky can't see Freddie Swain when he lines up. It's some kind of he's wearing some invisibility cloak, I guess. So is that his third touchdown where they've left him absolutely unguarded? Amazing, completely open. So they just blew that one. There was no trickery. There wasn't a previous thing to set it up. However, the Trask run was absolutely something that was play calling away into points. We completely fooled their entire defense. They had been shifting accurately on a lot of these kind of plays before, and they shift their entire defense left on P. Ryan, and they ate that like a cookie, and he walked right into the end zone. So that was definitely a super important touchdown based upon a play call. And then, of course, maybe the second most important one. You could argue the most important one, but I think in order of operations, you had to have the first before you get to the second. The handoff to Hammond. So on first down, we ran the same exact play the other way to test if they were going to let their nickel or their corner guard Hammond all the way across the field typically in that case you have two choices you have that guy chase him on the motion or you pass it off the linebacker bumps out the corner on the other side bumps out everyone shifts over accordingly to fill space which allows you to react faster to a jet sweep so on first down we saw that they kept the man assignment all the way across the formation and we felt like well if we have to take a chance here on third down if they do the same thing again we might be able to hit them for a big play. Sure enough, we do it. Same situation ensues. The trail defender is way behind the play. In fact, he stops, which is worse than what the first guy did. Counting on a switch but not calling for one, we wind up walking into the end zone. So that was a big, big time play call. It was set up beforehand. It was tested out. Well done. It was That was a three-play set, Allen, to win the game, which wound up winning the game. Of course, we've done it before with right. Tony on a similar play. Right. So, Our so friend Matt Duffy pointed there. that out to us last night that uh... – yeah, that we had done that before with Tony on that jet sweep, and I do like that. Uh, we're gonna let's add this to coaching corner. Did you like that handoff play? Not like that we were smart and picked that up, but that particular handoff in that situation. We'll, we'll save that for our coaching corner. Let's talk about Felipe. You ready? I'm ready. Here's the stats: twelve of seventeen, hundred seventy-four yards, one TD, one pick, also one fumble, I believe. Um. You know, bad interception, rolls out, looks down the field, does not see the safety at all in the middle of the field, throws it up for grabs. It's a terrible interception. What, you know, made a few nice throws down to Cleveland, down the middle of the field. You know, we talked about it again. He does a good job of recognizing the corner blitz. Almost every time that's presented to him, he picks it up and makes a nice read out of it. What was your impression of his play overall? I thought that this game, which could, depending on your viewpoint, be the last game of his Florida career, or he could have a comeback story. This was yet again sort of the epitome of Felipe Franks. Uh, he he does the things he does pretty well, and he does the things he doesn't do well pretty poorly. And you saw that on display. And we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. His first read throws were solid when he made the right first read pre-snap. Uh, outside of that, he would immediately exit the pocket. You know, turn his head around. I think twice he turned all the way around, right? These are like fundamental things you shouldn't violate. 
And then, of course, when he did do a nice job of buying a lot of time, nobody was open. That's not his fault. Uh, traditionally, he had done a nice job of, of sort of throwing the ball away or running out of bounds. This season, he's taken more chances and throws up just a really very elementary level ball that should not be thrown at this level in this kind of game on the road at that stage, basically nuking all of the momentum we had to start on first down. So it's like take the good with the bad. Um, you know, Say what you want about Franks. I think one thing I'll want to say, since we're not going to talk about him anymore this season, is he is a super tough quarterback. He's under assault a lot. He's not doing the right things, which we say analytically, but he's not Chris Leak. You know, Chris Leak, if we had a podcast back then, made a living of just evading any kind of pressure. He'd duck, he'd fall, he'd run away. He's not afraid, but I think his lack of technical skill hurt him. And if you're wondering on this podcast why I can be confident or why I tend to speak very confidently about what I see in limited sample sizes from quarterbacks, it's because you can very quickly evaluate those technical quarterbacking skills, which is why Franks was a project from the beginning. And it's why very early on, Alan, in this year's podcast after Miami, we said, hmm, the development's not there. We can pretty much tell you it's not going to be there because those technical things weren't cleaned up. When a guy turns a corner, those things are visible. And that's what I think is going to be the story for Franks right now. If he wants to play at a different level, he's going to have to find a way to work on those skills. He does have the arm talent to do it. He obviously has the athleticism. But that's ultimately what gets him every single time. And I think Kentucky counted on that in this game. They were able to take advantage of that in this game. And so he winds up finishing with a, a very interesting Felipe Frank stat line that's actually a higher rating than Trask. It looks very efficient. His season numbers actually look very good. But the stats don't tell the story with Felipe Franks. You have to watch the quarterbacks, where their reads are, who they're throwing to, how quickly they're getting through their progressions, how well they, they handle themselves in the pocket to really get an evaluation of what that guy can do. Franks had sort of mastered the don't be a good technical quarterback, but have good numbers. And a lot of that goes to Dan Mullen's ability That's to true. call plays that are successful for him. So let's not forget that either. Yeah, I, I guess we're going to put a cap on at least the 2019 discussion of Felipe in terms of his on the field play. And yeah, always a mixed bag. You're never quite able to accomplish what you want and you're leaving a lot out there. So even though you can be effective, doesn't mean that you're excelling. And again, his numbers aren't terrible. He makes a decent throw a lot of the time. Obviously he has a lot of arm talent, but it was the difference between him and Trask was immediate. And here's something that you've, Comment on frequently. Are you ready to move on to one Kyle Trask? Um, I'm ready. Is that what okay. I'm commenting on frequently? Well, Kyle Trask? I'm let, ready. <laughs> so what you comment on immediately. We've talked about this really frequently since we've been watching the, the film this season is, you know, we, we'd say the heavy side or the empty side. And so if you're, if you're thinking about your, if you're the quarterback and you've got maybe one receiver to your left and you've got three receivers to your right, the three receivers were saying that's the heavy side versus the empty side or just the, singular receiver to your left. Felipe very rarely throws to the heavy side and prefers to throw to the empty side. Now, we don't know if that's just his preference totally or that's what he's comfortable with, so those are what the coaches call, or if that he just can't process enough of the information on the opposite side of the field. Kyle Trask, 9 of 13, 126 yards, one TD running, immediately comes in throwing to the heavy side of the field is the first play is a play action pass, fake handoff, just a dart to, I believe Van Jefferson 
on a nice little right route combo, and he is wide open. Wide open. And then you see him start making some really great passes into some big windows because Kentucky couldn't even come close. They were staying five, six yards. They were terrified of Van Jefferson and the rest of those guys beating them over the top and looked excellent doing it. Uh, so what about Frank's, excuse me, what about Trask allowed him to perform so well in that situation? It's the read speed and the ball timing. The two things we highlighted against UT Martin that said these things will apply in a, in a bigger game as well. And those are the technical skills that don't slow down when you're playing a better team. The read speed is exactly the same. What changes against a better team is it's not as obvious as to who's open because their coverage is tighter. But your read speed, if it's fast against a bad team, it's still fast against a good team. And that was on display. So that very first play, he's, he's already known from being on the sidelines, being on the headset, watching from the aerial photos, that Kentucky is playing a very, very soft cover two. At times, a cover three because the corner is so far off. And Kentucky, like we've highlighted all year long, knows that Franks does not throw into the strong side. It's not always the strong side, which is why we're kind of giving you a different name for it. But the side where there's more receivers, he, it's almost like the plague for him. He hates doing it. So what does Trask come in? He promptly comes in and throws almost every single one of his passes for the rest of the game to the to the stronger side of the sophomore receivers. Right, Just and we've we've looked undressing on th- them. Yes, with and these we've combos. looked on film the opposite side of the field. Now, if unless it's just window dressing and we're running the ball, is those guys are open. The combos are working. If you, it wasn't just like oh the play was supposed to go over here, and those guys were just dummy routes. The other routes were live routes. And Frank and gosh, I'm gonna do this for maybe a couple more weeks. Trash started hitting them immediately with some great throws. And you realize the power of ball timing. So when we're talking about ball timing, we're saying the ball comes out when it should come out. And the reason why our receivers were all of a sudden looking like they had moves. When was the last time, Alan, you saw receivers juking people for Florida? It's been quite some time. That has everything to do with ball timing and of course ball placement. But if you are throwing the ball to a receiver at the proper time in his route, that is when he has reached peak separation from his defender. So if you look at the very first play, a simple little five-yard hitch route to Van Jefferson, our slot receiver pulls that linebacker with him or the nickel slot with him. That leaves Van Jefferson open. But when Trask throws the ball, it's immediately after the pullout. It's a zero-step drop. Catches the ball, slides the feet, throws the ball, which keeps the coverage defender of Van Jefferson at his furthest distance. He's still in the back pedal. Van catches it. That linebacker breaks off of the interior receiver to then come and try to pull Van Jefferson. He makes a move and gains 89 yards. That's perfect, perfect timing. If you throw that ball too soon or too late, you don't have that opportunity. So he's maximizing yards after catch based upon when he throws. That's very, very high-level quarterbacking. Trask is extremely good at executing his footwork fundamentals after a play fake, after a ball fake to the running back. He's so fast and decides to make his reads. The most impressive thing to me, though, Alan continues with Trask to be how quickly he reads the entire field. I have never seen in all of my tape watching of Franks him execute even a three-read progression where I could identify his eyes clearly looking at three receivers. We saw on film at least three of those 13 dropbacks Trask had where he went through the entire field of progressions. And he did so within two seconds. Very, very fast. Yeah, didn't have to leave the pocket or wait there. Boom, 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 decision. He, and he got off of a... So sometimes you see Felipe, the guy is kind of open, or it's it's a bad look, but he might still throw it anyway, and maybe we complete it. But Trask is quickly is like, okay, that guy's pretty covered. I know this other guy over here has a good chance to be open, and he hits him. Or they go all the way through, 
nothing there. Let's get out of this thing. Let's throw the ball away. Looked very impressive. All right, I want you to talk about this one throw that you were gushing about when we watched the film. When it's late in the game, there's a pass rush in, in Trask's face, and he hits Kyle Pitts over in the middle of the field. You know, Pitts ends up breaking some guys and gets us close to the goal line. Talked about talk about why that was so impressive. So this is this is a pass you're going to recall from the game because I got about ten texts right away. Trask's arm strength question mark. So try to apply back. The guy's got a hose. Not as strong as Franks. His Franks has an elite level arm, even amongst NFL quarterbacks. But Trask has got a very strong arm. The pass in question is the one we're talking about. It's like a 20-yard dig, basically, from where Trask is standing. What you didn't see live was upon catching the snap, one of our guards gets blown up and just pushed basically straight back into Trask. Trask is unable to keep his feet downfield. He actually has to open his, his his base, his platform. So his legs go from being, you know, a quarterback stance typically, right, like parallel. He switches and opens them. So he's basically wide open facing the oncoming defensive lineman. Shoulders are totally open to the field. Almost no power to be able to generate this throw on. And throws this ball at the exact right time, about 10 yards in front of Pitt so he can run underneath it, over the linebacker's head for like a 35-yard gain when he has no ability to generate any kind of downward ball pressure using his feet. So the ability in the moment to recognize that's a window throw, when he threw it, Pitts wasn't open yet, but there's a huge space of grass that he's going to be open into, which is very high-level quarterbacking. To then know that I don't have the ability to drive down on this throw, I've got to move it six or seven yards to the right, and I've got to get rid of it now before I get pushed into, is an incredible throw. I encourage you to go find that throw on film, because if you're one of the ones who texted me and said, what's his arm strength like? Super strong. There are very few guys who can make that throw, period, at this level. I thought the best thing trusted on film, which we couldn't see Allen live, was how so many of his throws came when he had to switch his feet around because he was about to get either hit or rolled into or he could not drive all the way through his throw. The one worst throw he had behind that, besides that two-point conversion was a throw he tried to float over to Swain over a linebacker's head. It's like a Brett Favre-like aggressive throw. He actually hits his, his hand on a helmet because his offensive lineman gets pushed right back into him. I think on film he probably makes that throw. Not a, not a, not a well-advised throw, but again, showing you his confidence with his touch, varying his velocity. So I think the takeaways I want you to have as a listener, if you had watched all the game film we watched, here's what you'd come away with. The first drive that Trask came in and scored touchdown on, Allen was basically perfect quarterbacking. You couldn't find a single thing he did wrong when it came to footwork, read, ball speed, timing, literally perfect. The majority of the game he played was virtually perfect as a quarterback, minus a couple things here and there. What I want to tell you about Trask is he is a gunslinger. Yes. Trask is going to throw more interceptions than Franks would have or other guys would have, but he's also going to potentially throw a lot more touchdowns and more offense opening plays there's no spot of the field this guy won't hit i want to say something else though to kind of encapsulate this because we've got some more micro comments we want to make on grading him but i want to put it in this kind of context alan we talked before the season about what would happen to florida if franks went out who would play what would happen how many wins was franks worth we had this great conversation i think i said franks is maybe worth one win but potentially the ceiling would get higher we talked about that. We kind of felt like Franks' ceiling was already met. We didn't have a, an ability to win. I want to ask you now before we keep creating trash, because we're in the middle of this conversation. It's the question I think on everyone's mind. Florida's ceiling this season right now. I think we both agree the floor is going to be lower. 
Mm-hmm. We could go Don't to lower mind. places. Do you think the ceiling, limited action, has, has been pushed higher than maybe what it was before the Franks injury? I think so. And that speaks to our relative strengths and weaknesses of this current roster. Because we have such exceptional talent at wide receiver that we should be able to take advantage of people throwing the ball. Now, I don't know if Kyle Trask is going to be able to play like this again or if once people get some film on him or our tendencies with him. Uh, and we're going to talk about good Trask, bad Trask here in a minute. Of word, word, Are there some concerns with him? Because it's not just glowing rainbows all the way around. But I think the ceiling is higher. Now, I don't even know from this point. We're going to talk about Trask and Emory Jones. Who knows what the coaches are going to do moving forward and how they're going to deploy him and what percentage of plays he's going to actually be in there. But I think the ceiling is higher. There's a variance level with this of the unknown. It's kind of crazy. I don't I don't know what it really means, but that's the exciting part. Now, again, he could come out and be very mediocre in a couple of these games and be like, well, maybe we lost the game we wouldn't have because he made some mistakes that Franks wouldn't have made. But that the exciting thing is I think the ceiling might be higher. Now that we could I could incredibly regret that comment in two weeks after we actually watch him play, maybe like three or four weeks, once we see him against Auburn LSU, I could say, you know what, that was way wrong. But right here, the way he played against Kentucky, I think the ceiling is a little bit higher. Yeah, I'm gonna confidently say the ceiling is higher. The okay. floor is lower. I'm gonna confidently say that too. Uh, he's inexperienced. It's fair to say that Kentucky's defense, he got the best matchup he could have gotten with regards to their secondary. Very inexperienced, super vanilla, no confusing reads. It's it, it was it was elementary quarterbacking for a guy of his read skill, and he took advantage of it. There's no doubt things will be more complicated in the future for him. However, because he can do that, and Franks can't even remotely do that, Allen, he does push our ceiling higher because our ceiling with with Franks was known. It was known. We were not going to win the SEC title this year. If you think so after watching Franks play in the Kentucky game, please write me and explain to me how we can, and I'll present your data. But it's pretty clear to me we weren't going to win that. I do think now, could we beat Georgia? I think there's a shot. We have to see more data, but I would have said no shot with Franks. I would say if we have a quarterback who can actually throw with the receivers that we have, even with our O-line, that frees a lot of stuff up, Alan. The way he throws the quick game. We're going to call the zero drop game. Take the shotgun, swivel the hips, throw the ball. Does not require tremendous blocking by the offensive line. That kind of rhythm also wears out the the defensive line of the opposing team. They're getting off on their breaks, but the ball's out, the ball's out, the ball's out. So it winds up wearing on them over the course of a game. These things can drastically change how well an offense performs. Now, before we talk about the other good things Trask did, let's go into what you coined during our film session. Good Trask, bad Trask. Let's talk about... Some some bad trash. Walk me through the two point conversion, which, admittedly, folks, was better on film than what you may have thought watching. Right, it, it looked like time. he just threw a wild pass, and and really the play wasn't executed well. And Kentucky seemed to know what we we're going to run on that particular play. Um, I don't. I'm not going to hate on Kyle Trask for that. Um, the, it's really the the throw that you've already mentioned where he tries to fit it into an incredibly tight window. Again, for better or worse, Trask is going to let it go. He's going to let it fly. He's 
the coaches might help him like eat a sack or throw it away. And if he's out in the wide side of the field, I think he'll throw it out of bounds. He did that, I believe, in the game. But he's back there in the pocket, and he sees a chance to make a play. At least right now, he's going to throw it. And maybe that's a lack of live game reps where he doesn't know as much like what happens when I make this kind of pass. So he could improve in that over time. But my intuition is that he's going to throw some picks. Now, this is the the king of this, of course, is Brett Favre, who loved taking chances, ultimate gunslinger. I can make every throw. I mean, contrast does not have Brett Favre's arm, uh, so he can't make all those throws. Uh, but that's his mentality, closer to that. When Felipe would you know, throw an interception, it looked like he didn't know what he was doing. I think Trask is the other way is like, not that he's like an overconfident guy, but he just is going to say, I'm going to try to make this happen. Hopefully the coaches can temper that a little bit without taking him out of the stuff that he does well. So just on that, his trash is limited time last week. And then this week expect some picks. This is not going to be a safe game manager type thing, which is what you would think of from your backup quarterback. He's going to come out and fire. So if you like that, you like that. If you don't like that, you don't like that. But that's, I think, what I'm expecting from him moving forward. And so we'll walk through a few, quote, bad trash situations. I don't I don't think that's going to be too harsh right uh, now. Yeah, it just sounded fun. Good it's trash, kind of bad funny. Trash. That's what we're saying. So don't get too crazy with yeah. actual bad trash. But then two-point conversion, as Alan mentioned, we're actually running a, a very – it's one of my favorite extra point plays when I coach or play flag football as a quarterback. It's a great route, running the NFL, running college. And you have your wide receiver run a slant. You have your slot receiver run basically a pick route. He's running a hitch down a pick route, and we have a three-receiver set. Our most inside receiver is running a drag to the back of the end zone. They line up in what looks to be a very favorable formation for us, with the key read being the linebacker on the inside guarding our, our most interior slot receiver. Upon hike, that linebacker takes one or two steps towards the goalpost like he's going to move with our dig, or I'm sorry, our drag, and then he immediately jumps the route. Which tells me, one, Mark Stoops knows that that two-point conversion play. It's hard to blame Trask for that. Trask is reading the motion of that linebacker. He watches the linebacker carry a step or two with the route he's supposed to cover and assumes that linebacker is going to run with that route. Now, if you're in the NFL, you wait one more beat to see if that linebacker declares or not. And if he doesn't, he would have had a throw to the back of the end zone. But he doesn't. He quickly decides that linebacker is running with that guy. I've got this window, which he would have had had that linebacker not made a good play. So upon second uh, look, it's actually a pretty pretty nice defensive play by Kentucky with regards to knowing our play. And then you mentioned the one where he tried to fit it in. The downside to gunslingers are they don't check down. They don't want to check down. And and Kyle Trask does not want to check down. There's times on film where he could have checked down, but I got to tell yeah. you, Alan, as a fan, and we talked about this before, <laughs> if you want to be entertained, you want a guy who doesn't check down. Sometimes it will drive you crazy. You will watch Brett Favre lose a playoff game at Lambeau because he refuses to check down. Yeah, if the running back is running 10 yards to the side of the field with nobody around him, but you're going to try to fit it in that 15-yard little honey hole down the sideline. Because you think you can, which is yeah. which is wildly entertaining. It's how some of the great throws in football are made. But I also think, oddly enough, Alan, given this year's roster and who we have at receiver in our matchups versus other teams, we need that mentality to beat the biggest teams. We are not a floor strategy team. We've talked a lot about this in the past. We won't cover it extensively right now. If you're Alabama or you're Clemson, or you're even Georgia, you can be a floor strategy team. You have super, super good talent. 
you can basically count on playing the lowest level variance, right? And if you're not familiar with- The least with amount like, of risk. Right, yeah, variance is risk, right? And four strategy means that, hey, we're gonna go for the, 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 the safest way to get X amount of points per game, and we don't wanna add any risk to that. We could score a lot more, we don't wanna risk it. That's kind of the floor strategy. Nick Saban really pioneered that in the college game better than anyone else, and I think Clemson's now forced him to take a higher variance strategy, which you've seen on display this season. Uh, in previous seasons already. So with Trask, you're going to get more variants. You're going to get more picks. He tends to not necessarily see those robbing players, which also happened against UT Martin. He won't see the underneath robber. Uh, you're going to see that employed against Tennessee this week, for sure. I guarantee it. They're going to attempt to confuse him and rely on his best trait, which is his his quick read. So what you should do as a quarterback is make your quick read, have a second in your head to see if anyone's sliding over into your zone. If you come off that, you got to check the ball down. He reads so fast, Allen. I love to see what happens when he has game experience because if he can add the check down to his game, you basically have an NFL quarterback technique-wise. He may never be able to add it. We're going to find out. Right now, it's definitely a weakness in his game. And I can assure you, he'll spend a lot of time this week talking about go through your reads. Once you get through the three of them, you got You have to hit your check down. You must hit your check down. And again, this is not a knock against Kyle Trask. The majority of college quarterbacks that make it to the NFL, they have to learn to check the ball down. They made it there because they were good enough in college not to have to check the ball down. And I love that Trask doesn't want to check the ball down. That's a win for all of us. I promise you it'll be a much more exciting passing game to watch. All right, a couple more things on Trask. We've talked about this so many times before, Alan, and it made my heart so happy. Kentucky, because we we're abusing their cover two man coverage, when Trask was in, began to switch. So they immediately tried to go to a cover one man press. They said, you know what? We can't play off ball on this guy. He's reading our souls. Let's go man press and see if he can beat man. And as soon as we did that, we ran a go route from the slot. We get it. We get a perfectly thrown ball to Hammond who gets pass interfered with. Bingo, 15 yards. So Kentucky goes, we are not doing that again. That is not good. We can't handle that. So then they tried to go to a cover three. Later, let's sit way back off. Let's sink off a cover three. Kyle Trask, bam, makes them pay again. So you're watching him read their back-end coverages and immediately make the right decision. I don't know how many times, Alan, we have said when these teams go cover one like Miami, why are we not throwing vertical routes? But we did it with Trask. So I'm hopeful that Mullen, and this is maybe the big question for the Tennessee segment we're going to talk about, does Mullen change some of his strategy or tactics, more of his very conservative three, three and a half yard offense to take advantage of how well Trask does some of this stuff? And how poorly we do other things. And how bad we are, in fact, at doing the base strategy based upon some other stuff. So there's a lot to be excited for. And we can't end the Trask segment without talking about the option play. <laughs> one of the key plays of the game. One of the most important plays of the game and an incredible play. And again, this illustrates, if you want to watch one play that illustrates how Trask thinks, watch this play. He rolls out to the left, right? Yes. And he's making his read. And he's, all he's supposed to do is read that one linebacker that's in space guarding either him or Piran. Linebacker does a nice job of taking two steps towards Piran, to which then Trask makes the correct decision to keep the ball. Perfect. Then the linebacker quickly reengages Trask. Does a very nice job of Very that. nice play by him. And then Trask recognizes, well, if that's what he did, then I know that Piran's unguarded and I've got my blockers here. So I'm going to go all Eric Crouch from Nebraska or Tommy Frazier, whoever you like, and I'm going to pitch this ball to Piran. He's going to walk in the end zone. That play is risky, but that's a gunslinger play. He knows the right thing to do. It's only risky because he's got to execute the pitch. But in his head, he knows it's a touchdown. Nails it. Just beautiful. Yeah, watching that live, I was like, that was crazy. He just pitched it to him as he was getting tackled. It felt 
crazy. But watching it back on tape, it's actually a much more reasonable decision. I, I think if, if we're up in the game, I would just say, Kyle, just take the tackle. It's not worth throwing it five yards in the air over to P. Ryan. But at that point in the game, we absolutely needed to take those kind of risks. So we'll see. Some you, it might burn us a couple times. Like we're, I want to clearly say that. But it wasn't a crazy play. It was aggressive, but it wasn't wild. I think that uh, showed up on film a lot. Aggressive, but not wild. We'll see if he can continue to walk that line. We will, and I'm, as you can tell, I'm, I'm geeked up for it. And <laughs> you are. for those of you that think I'm just negative all the time, you can see that if there's data in front of me to get me excited, I will support you. Like, look at Will Greer. I still love that guy. I will give you all the love there is. So for Trask, I'm super stoked. I think no matter where you stand, whether you're really worried about the season or you're really excited like I am that Trask can play well, we still have plenty of questions. It's a team sport, uh, but I think it will be fun to watch what Trask does for me as a fan because he does do these technical things very well. It's been since Will Greer we've had a quarterback like this, and before Will Greer it's been many moons since we had a guy like this. You're probably going all the way back to to maybe Rex Grossman because Tim Tebow did not excel. Yeah, Tim Tebow did not excel at these kind of things either. He was different in how he made his reads, but this kind of quarterbacking was something John Brantley was hopeful for. And if you're hearing that name and you're worrying Trask is him, don't. They're very different. But that was something we thought Brantley could do. I think Trask can do it. Well, that would be the ultimate version of Kyle Trask. If he could achieve his highest heights, it would be a Rex Grossman-esque. I don't think he has near the talent or ability of Rex, at least at this point. We'll see. Okay, let's talk about our defense. <laughs> uh, we're going to start with Kentucky's game plan. I'm just laughing because you coined the phrase Kentucky's jump ball offense. And that's where they killed us. I mean, they have the giant. We didn't mention him because he had barely played. Uh, Ahmad Wagner, I believe, is his name. Number 14. You can't miss him. Enormous. He had the, I'm using air quotes here, touchdown at one point. But he killed us. They they had some really nice plays in third and long where they just threw it up to these guys and they were successful because they have some huge guys or some really quick guys in Bowdoin. Uh, so like you said, dual use of RPOs and jump balls. And they did some really smart things where they took advantage of what are some limitations on our roster, You know, specifically David Reese covering some of their receivers. Uh, we asked a lot of David Reese, and he wasn't quite there. And they made some nice throws on those two things. They had to execute that as well, but that's where they attacked us. Um, they created some good matchups. And then you comment on this a lot when we're watching film. Every time they ran a tunnel screen, which is basically throwing wide to the right receiver, and you have all these guys basically – running really far across the formation to make a block, and it looks like he's running through a tunnel. They executed those very well. Anything else you would want to say about Kentucky's game plan? They do what they do, and they and they do it well. We talked about it being like a high school yeah, offense. Yeah, but it's effective at points. And and it is. It is a high school offense, and that's I'm not knocking it. Look, Gus Malzahn has had a high school offense that you know, makes Auburn people pull their hair out. But when it's good, it's good. And and they 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 succeeded on third down tremendously in this game. A lot of that was because of the jump balls. In fact, if you take the jump balls out of this game, did they score a touchdown? I don't even know. Some of that stuff, a little unlucky, obviously, like the air quote touchdown you mentioned. But it worked for them. It's been working for them. I was most impressed, Alan, with how they had created mismatches to go against Reese. I thought that was very high level of them. You can count on other teams doing the same. He's a phenomenal run stopper. He's not a poor pass coverage guy, but he's not good enough for the matchups they put on him. 
uh, and Sawyer Smith did a good job of hitting those. So I was impressed with their game plan like we talked about. I think they out-game-planned us on both offense and defense. Our game plan was to move Trey Dean to corner, something we had also talked about. What would you do if these people went down? We put Trey Dean in corner. Because Bernie was out, it created some very interesting deficits. And we also talked about being thin at corner and safety, and you saw this on display in this game, which made us do some stuff we didn't really want to do. So we came into the game hoping to run a base 3-4 defense, which you've heard us long chronicle on this show as being something we do not excel at. Even though we're a 3-4 defense, we just don't have the proper mix of linebackers yet, nor the depth to actually do that. Complicating that, Zuniga goes down in the very fourth, third, or fourth play of the game, and now you are in a world of trouble. So our base game plan of 3-4, we sprinkled in and tried. It was not successful. Yeah, you see them pretty quickly bring in Kyrie Elam and move Dean back to nickel, and that was more successful for us. Uh, Elam did a credible job out there at corner. He's a big dude, and that was much more effective. We had to gamble and that we wanted to go a little safer, and it didn't work for us. Yeah, and so we did not see Chester Kimbrough, who we talked about, who kind of came oh, out first. Chester. And we mentioned we thought Elam would be the guy. So we got out game plan there, which sometimes happens with Grantham early. I kind of think it remained for most of the game. What's going to be interesting here is a lot of you are probably really, really concerned with the defense. There's a lot of fear about how bad this defense could be. Are we really screwed? Are things kind of all over? I can tell you upon film there's some good reasons to believe that's not the case. And there's also some some good things to highlight as to where we are as a program. But for the, the course of the season, I think a lot of it remains just as our first season preview episode said it would. If we take injuries in certain places, these things are going to happen. Right. If we don't, we're still going to be good. And let, me, let me mention that as well. This may be three of our most important players that would dictate how we are going to do. They're maybe our most irreplaceable type of figure. So CJ Henderson, not in this game. Jabari Zuniga who does a lot for us in the run and pass game, doesn't play most of this game. Amari Bernie, who's kind of our all-purpose tool. You can move him around. You can disguise what you're going to do. He's going to cover some of these guys at linebacker. I think we would have seen him on Wagner a lot more. He's much bigger and more physical than Marco Wilson. And just took away a lot of our tools. And we struggled with that. Now, again, we still got a lot of high-level players on that defense without those guys out there. But we talked about our starters being elite and the level below them being not quite there. And so we had to, I don't know, cut some corners. We tried. Didn't work. Eventually started to slow them down enough. They didn't score in the fourth quarter that we were able to take advantage of it. And to JT Raymond, who we once got in a fun discussion about the composite, there's a five-year composite ranking you can look at. And JT's very frustrated this year that Florida's 16th and other schools like Tennessee are above us and Kentucky's close. That's actually where this ranking comes into play because it's your bench depth. It's not just your starters, but good football teams have got to have other guys. Alabama right now is dealing with a spate of injuries on defense. It could change their entire season. The difference, obviously, between them and everyone else is all the guys they're bringing in are tremendously talented. They're just inexperienced. For us, we got to the points in this game, Alan, where we're bringing in not only inexperienced guys, but guys that are not that talented. And that hurt us against a Kentucky unit on offense who was healthy for this game, and they were obviously controlling the line of scrimmage anyway. So successful things we did. We got only one sack in this game. That's not successful. But what I'm going to say is we got a turnover off of that. You talked a lot about fumble luck. Seemed to swing around on that one. That was a total gift for us at a crucial time. We also got three picks. 
two of which were by Sean Davis, who played a phenomenal game. Looked great on tape again. Yet again, if you listen to this podcast all year long, you've heard us really trumpet him up. Of course, I love that guy. I've been really pleased to see the coaching staff do the obvious and put him in there. And then David Reese, tough game in the passing game, phenomenal game in the run-stopping game. Really two huge stops on third and one and fourth and one in the fourth quarter that would have changed, obviously, the entire complexion of this game. Uh, big, big time there. And then I thought I thought Greenard um, really played you know well. He was asked a lot of. They double-teed him a lot in this. We were very successful using him. Several of the bad throws in the fourth quarter came exclusively from him beating a double team. And that was important. If we don't get that pressure, things might be different because Sawyer Smith, when he had time, was really making us pay. Yeah, one adjustment that we make that Kentucky did not adjust back um, is Greenard's role in the run game. You see him on a lot of their runs crashing down the line from his end spot, reading that very quickly and effectively, and bringing the running back down from behind. I think when the Kentucky coaches watched that film, they were going to regret not accounting for him uh, in a more emphatic way because he really affected the game um, in the run game as well. Um it's funny to talk about the defense because Kentucky only scores 21 points and again, one on jump ball, but it felt like they were controlling the game. So I don't want to go all negative on the defense. They made some nice plays again. Sean Davis with interceptions, some pressure at key times, enough of us stopping them in the run game that we, they didn't run all the way through us, but we really struggled in points in this game, especially in the first half. And that was from their offensive line soundly defeating a large chunk of our defensive line. We really struggled at defensive tackle. They were getting moved off the spot. Jeremiah Moon was getting moved off the spot a lot. He made some plays, but was in way bad position. Our lack of high-end talent at defensive tackle really showed up in this game. And I thought Kentucky did a good job. They were blowing us off the ball. I think David Reese, Brunson, Miller, the Sean Davis, if those guys aren't hitting the right gaps, we would have gotten incredibly gashed. So you can see right away even the difference David Reese makes. We speculated that last year, that not having him was the big difference. I think it was the key to this game. But defensive tackle really struggled. Yeah, Alan, I think no David Reese in this game, and they probably have 260 yards rushing as opposed to 160 in fact, if you're a Kentucky fan or the coaches, you're disappointed with your 160. We actually yes. had a very good, I'm going to say good, performance against the run. To only give up 3.6 yards per carry in a game where you are getting controlled on the line of scrimmage by you know, the interior part of Kentucky's line. I mean, that that's when we saw Benny Snell go just nuts all over us every single year. And, and David Reese was the main reason why. He's always in the right hole. So we take a bad situation and keep it just a bad versus horrible. Uh, so credit to the defense there, something you should feel better about. And as you said, Alan, we talked about this for two years now on the pod. We whiffed a couple of years ago entirely, basically, on our defensive interior alignment. And we said, this is not something that will matter right now, but just wait two or three years, this will matter. Well, it caught up to us in this game against Kentucky when we didn't have two premier ends, like Zuniga and Greenard, who can put pressure on, and we had only one, they were able to double-team Greenard and just control our tackles. I mean, it was disgusting to watch how these guys are getting well, Especially if if Schuler and Campbell weren't both in there. Marlon Dunlap is a guy who I think can play some against lower end, gives those guys some reps, but he got controlled a little bit in this game. Luke Anker, when he was in there, didn't look good. They were having 
we're so thin right there without Elijah Conleth as well. There, Zach Carter, who I think can give you some minutes or some snaps at defensive tackle, um, especially in a passing situation. They were having to put him in there in run situations, and he he just wasn't strong enough. He didn't wasn't terrible, but he wasn't good. He wasn't affecting the play. And we're just really undermanned at that spot. We're going to have to figure something out when we see some of the more dominant run units. And Kentucky is a decent run team. So this was a really good test. Yeah, um, they are one of the better run units. I think a lot of yeah. people are saying, well, what happens when we play against the better teams in the SEC run-wise? Well, of course, Georgia is the first one that comes to mind, mm-hmm. right? That's 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 going to be a problem. Uh, that's also later in the season. So you get much better against stopping things like this. I think what Kentucky presents this interesting challenge every year now and that they're a very formidable run team early. And for us, we have not gotten the depth on our roster to where it needs to be on the D-line. And that's what causes us to be in trouble. You do gain a lot of experience and valuable film for the next month before you play Georgia. It makes a big difference by the time you get to that game in your run-stopping ability. So we definitely struggled there. And the other big one is, of course, on third down. They completed an absurdly high percentage of third downs, especially in the first half. James, what was going on with that? We continue to struggle when we drop eight. That that's something I'd like to see us just say, rip, rip say up a little bit more. What does that out. mean? Drop so eight. whenever we whenever we're going to either rush three or and sometimes rush four, we drop seven, right? So you're going to play max coverage. Maybe it's your seven guys versus their three or four guys, and you say, look, that's not a problem. We're going to create these zones. We're going to fall back into them. We're going to cover well. I'm assuming we don't practice it a lot. We primarily play a lot of man. I hate when man teams play zone on third down and long. In fact, I love Nick Saban's primary strategy. It's also an NFL strategy. On third down, you almost always play man. Why would you play a zone? Play man. Bring pressure. Play man. Take your chances, right? College coaches fear this a lot because of pass interference calls. But the problem is Marco Wilson has, I think he's a very good man corner. I think he had a fine game. A lot of people were kind of abusing him. If you look at him, he's, no, he did well. he's pretty much there every time. And he got unlucky twice. The pass interference call that got called against him, not a pass interference call. He successfully defended the touchdown pass that was not a touchdown that got called one. But on zone now, this is two times this year where he has not gotten enough depth, and he's guarding no one. So you're in a zone where you've got an area to guard, but the rule is very simple. If no one is underneath your zone or to the left of your zone, you just also help out the zone behind you. And so the guy runs right past him in between him and Sean Davis. It's not Sean Davis's fault in that situation. He should carry with him. Ball gets floated over for a long first down on third and 17. And that's one of them. And then on other ones, you know, I think they were a little bit luckier and or Sawyer Smith made some great throws. But that one sticks out to me because that's a self-inflicted wound. It's third and 16. We're not going to blitz. Third and 21, I believe. Yeah, third and 21. We're not going to we're not going to blitz in that situation with Grantham early in the game on the road like that. That We do that frequently, though, and that, that bothers me, I think. Stick with the blitz, Grantham. It's what you do. You're not catching anybody by surprise. Bring the pressure. Let our guys play man. That's what we excel with. We struggled on third down, like you said, Alan, especially in the first half. It's what led to most of Kentucky's drives and points. The good news in that is it wasn't like these guys were wide open. They had to earn those third downs. I feel better going forward, especially once CJ is back, Bernie's back. It's different. We've talked about this a lot. Our starting line is top 10 worthy. If you get to the second guys, Alan, we are maybe the 25th best team in the country. And that's what happened in this game. It equalized very, very quickly when we did not have the same talent we should have had. So the good news is we don't have a lot of season-ending injuries to these guys. We should be healthy. The bad news is if they happen, we don't have solutions to these problems. They will continue to be problems. One guy, Allen, who played a lot in the fourth quarter, I actually asked you during film session, 
Alan Brunson, who who is this guy, number 34, on the field? I mean, he must be at the end of the depth chart, right? Tell me more about the two-star linebacker. Well, Cedric Brunson, this is one of those guys Randy and Shannon love to take. We took him at the end of a recruiting cycle. Um, very unknown recruit, and I didn't I really expect him to ever see the field. But apparently, he's come along enough that we're trusting him at the end of the games. Again, no Bernie. I'm not sure why Miller wasn't out there. Uh, maybe they just felt Brunson gave them a better look. Uh, so either that's, in one hand, concerning that he's out there, or, hey, maybe another guy who's in the mix. But it just shows you that we're, even behind Miller, if they're like, either Miller's not a good fit for the situation, or maybe he did something that we didn't like, or whatever, the guy behind him is a two-star guy. So still, you know, I, I thought Brunson played well. So I don't want to, don't hear me say like that's the reason we played poorly. He played in the fourth quarter and he played well, he made some nice tackles. But just there's just not a lot there. You're you're on a very thin rope there. Yeah, and that's what we're illustrating again. Like like Alan said, Brunson actually played well, which is why we're highlighting him. But it shows you at Bama, you don't have a two star as your sixth or seventh linebacker. In the fourth quarter of a game, you're desperately trying to win on the road. But again, he made, I think, what could have been a, a game-saving tackle when Kentucky's in their own territory. Huge hole. He comes across the formation to make a diving tackle on the running back who had a lot of daylight in front of him. So that's the defense. I'm going to ask you this question on the defense, Alan. Do you feel the same way you felt before the season started? Or are you more concerned or less concerned moving forward? A little more concerned. Uh, I don't know what... It is quite that the coaches need to do to shore this up, but we're getting blown off the ball too much, too much. And there, I don't know if there's some combination of players. Slayton still doesn't seem like he's the guy. Conliffe, I don't know how long he'll be out. Um, maybe season injury ending. We haven't heard that. I don't know if there is a combination of guys that can hold up underneath that. Um, it didn't go well for us. When we tried to play a more traditional look, not our not our featured nickel uh, formation. I do have some more concerns. I don't think everybody on the schedule is going to be able to test us like that. I think Schuler and um, Campbell are credible guys. I, I'm not like saying that we can't stop anybody running the ball, but it's never going to be a strength of this team. And I think there are going to be some teams that expose us a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right there, and I, I highlighted this especially for me with the defensive tackle spot last year and this year coming into the season as being a, a inferior spot, and it showed up here. There are solutions to this problem. We're going to talk about them during the Tennessee side, but as a spoiler alert, expect us to run a little bit more 5-2 up front, so bringing five guys down into the box versus trying to rely on those three with two linebackers. Uh, possibly more undersized big bodies to deal with the run front, which means essentially you give some stuff up on the back end. But if we're healthy, you're more comfortable playing single high man than you would be if we're not healthy. And last game, that was the challenge it posed. I think they would have liked to have gone to a five-man front. But with all the changes, I don't think they felt super comfortable having to have two guys out there covering in spots they're not used to. So they just kind of held on, which worked out. But there are things in the future I expect us to address I think teams will recognize what Kentucky did to us. And again, Kentucky's offensive line is good. So don't sleep on that line. It's one of the better lines in the SEC. All right, special teams. McPherson misses his first field goal of this season, his second field goal of his career. He's almost automatic. I put the curse on him at the house saying, oh, he's automatic. He's not going to miss this. I don't care about the announcer jinx. 
Yeah, Bingo, missed badly, um, but came back in and made another clutch kick. Yeah, and our friend, of the, our good friend of the program, Caleb Sturgis, former Florida kicker, says that he only cares about how kickers perform when they missed a kick. And that next kick was right down the middle. So I know Caleb saw it and is thinking, this guy's, this guy's going to be good. And he likes McPherson a lot. But that's one thing he always says is you just don't know about him until he has a rough patch because that's what defines you as a kicker. Penalties were huge in this game, Alan. Targeting calls galore. A lot of flags all over the place. It, it, it's The targeting calls, I think, were, I guess, all correct. It didn't seem like Steiner's was correct. It made a tiny helmet contact. The rule is garbage. It's part of the problem here. There is no gray area. There is no sliding scale. I don't think any of the targeting calls were actually intentful or on purpose. It's just the stupid letter of the law that we're dealing with. But, man, were they impactful. Yeah, we benefited a lot from them late in the game. They kept the drive alive. Um, the hit on Trask. And like I said, I do think they were called correctly. It's This might just be one of those things where, I think I was saying this last night, like fumble luck. Where there's going to be a targeting call. Maybe there's going to be like six of them throughout the year. And you just hope that they even out for you. Because, yeah, it's so difficult. Now, there's some targeting penalties that this is why they put it in the rule book. Players cannot tackle like this. And they're putting themselves and other people in danger. Other times... It just seems excessively punitive. So it does, and at least for us, we lost Steiner, who I thought anytime we can get Steiner off the field is a good time. And they lost two impact players. That was big for them. They lost one of their better defensive linemen, and they lost you know their best safety. As an aside, before we move on away to the coaching corner, we didn't talk about this, but again, I'm still perplexed why. And Brad Stewart struggled in this game. They attacked him in coverage. He was fine when he wasn't trying to cover somebody one-on-one, which is not what we do. Sean Davis does that well. I don't know why Jawan Taylor and especially Steiner continue to get almost the same amount of snaps. We have this rotation going on, and they are so inferior on film. I just don't – I'd love to have Grantham sit down and tell me why we're still doing yeah, it. Yeah, well, there, I read an interesting thing. Um, you know, there was – it was kind of a little coaching aside where basically there's one weak link in a secondary and he gets burnt once or twice a game. Why is he out there? And the coach says, well, the other guys can't get lined up without him. So I'll take him getting burnt once or twice a game. If I take him out, it's more introduces more chaos. Those other guys are more talented, but maybe they're not in the right places to field. So I'm not saying that's necessarily the case with those guys. But just maybe there's something that the coaches see that they're doing or we need them out there or there's a deficiency that they're hiding or something. But it, maybe their answer is unsatisfactory to us, but it's an important question to ask. Yeah, I think their answer is going to be unsatisfactory and it's going to be, hey, we're recruiting people and we tell them they're going to play and they play, which makes me want to vomit all over this table. Okay. I liked your, your cute answer, though, of, of they line up. That actually is real sometimes. It's definitely not with Steiner and Taylor, but that that does happen, and we that that's a valid answer, I think. Sometimes when you say, "Yeah, well, you, this guy, this guy's not quite to the level, but he makes everybody else around him better," so we'll take the few plays that he misses. Yeah, and that's one of the most important things in football is to get your defense lined up correctly. Again, those two guys aren't doing that. Keep an eye on that. Obviously, Sean Davis is playing a lot of snaps now, but I think there's an argument that he should play every snap. He's sort of the 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 super poor man's Ed Reed. That's not even the right comparison, but he does a lot of, we're going to talk about in a second. He does a lot of stuff for us, a lot of stuff for us on film that may even go unnoticed when you're watching. All right. Coaching corner, some very interesting things for coaching corner. I love it when coaching corner has some fun stuff. Let's start with a very simple one. End of the first half, less than 20 seconds left. They're punting to us. We fair catch the ball inside our own 10 and then take a knee. 
This made me yell live. I was like, but why? Why is he fair catching that? It, it matters nothing. The only negative is that he fumbles it. If you just let it go in the end zone or even it gets down to the one. That's the worst case scenario. I guess maybe that's what they're thinking. But what's the odds of that? And plus you can just QB sneak it out of there. I mean, it, crazy, crazy that he caught that. That's wrong, and it's always wrong it's in that always situation. Wrong. You tell your guy to go back there and do the old fake fair catch somewhere else, and then you're fine. And if it goes in the one, you trust yourself to QB sneak it out. But you do not fair catch that ball there. And it's funny because, again, Dan Mullen has Freddie Swain back there because he trusts him catching it, which means he's kind of risk-averse in the punt. Either way, no matter what kind of coach you are, that was wrong. All right. This one I know you're excited about. Man. So we are down 21-16 with 12 minutes and 41 seconds left in the game. So a lot of time left. Do you like going for two in that situation? I'm going to say this in the highest key possible. I hate it. And I get flack for this because people are like, well, you know, you bring it to you know this score and the numbers or whatever. I don't want to do it until I absolutely have to. Because why? You saw it. This is the perfect example of why you don't do it. Kick, kick the extra point. You're down 21-17. Hope I'm going to do this math right. You score again. You kick the extra point, and then you're up three. So now because we've gone for it twice and haven't made it, we're only up one. Or if you just kick the extra point twice, you're up three. It's magical how that math works. I don't even know if I did it right. But you should definitely not go for two there. That kills me. That kills me. This is a great time to talk about meta strategy versus tactical and exploitative strategy. So I'll hear this comment a lot, and I love this. As an investor, most of my life is meta strategy. They'll say, all right, wait a minute. If if my analytics book in football says that if I go for two every time, I have a higher expected value for scoring points, I should go for two in these situations. Your analytics book is not making that argument. What it's trying to tell you is going for two is a good meta strategy. Most of the time, you should go for two. Of course, coaches don't do this. I agree that that's correct. Most of the time, you shouldn't punt, you know, et cetera, right? But this is a tactical situation. We talk a lot on this show about the lull of like staying within a score, either one score or two scores, and that's how you should evaluate decisions. As Alan mentioned correctly, this first thing you think of when should I go for two is how much time is left in the game. If there's a lot, in this case, we're going to get the ball at least two more times. Exactly. You do not want to go for two. Why? Because there is a decent chance you are going to score. You either want to score the touchdown, in which case puts you up three, but you also have information control. So let's say we kick the extra point. Al, we're down 21-17. If we're on the two-yard line and it's fourth and goal, now we have quality information control. We're down 21-17. We say, well, if we go for it and have to score a touchdown here and we make the extra point, we're up three. If we go for it and don't get it, we get the ball back again close. We can have another good shot of scoring a touchdown, right? So you're pushing your tactical expected value in the game to a different level because you're not putting yourself in the situation we got stuck in, which is, okay, we go for two, we don't get it. Now, we certainly are in a situation where we're no better than we were going to be. We're still down one you know, one score of some sort. Then we score again, have to go for two again to get it. And you can make the argument, wait a minute, wouldn't you expect to get one out of two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the reality here is if this was go for two, down 21-16 with two minutes left, yes. Yes. Go for two. Yes. With 12 minutes and 41 seconds left, there's too many points left in the game still to treat this as a one-shot scenario. And I think that's the answer. So if you find yourself being frustrated by the argument we're having, it's because you feel like the long-term math is going to hold out 
This is not flipping a coin a million times. Right. It's flipping a coin three times. And you could easily flip heads three times or no times or whatever the case may be. It's a short-term game. And the short-term game says give yourself optionality. Give yourself a chance to put yourself ahead by a field goal or whatnot. And obviously, we had the catastrophically worse result. But again, Alan, I'm totally with you here. The wrong time to go for two. Right, and most people time. just want to go, oh, it gets us within three. You just you need the numbers to match up. It, like, No, that's too early to consider that strategy in my mind. And well, especially because if, if they go if they go for a field goal, which is very achievable, that's a game, then it's 24 to 16. Right. And if not, it's 24 to 17, so then you score, you tie. So you're just putting yourself behind the eight ball for nothing. There's no real benefit there. Again, it's not a one-shot game in this situation. It's a long game, but it's also not an infinitely long game. I wonder if Dan Mullen felt that we're sh- – he doesn't think we might score again. That's correct, and that could be the rationale. But, again, I think I think it comes down to, like we said, in that situation of the game, where you're at, what's going on. Yes, there's reasons why you would do it. It's not a perfect black-and-white answer, but important right. to you consider. Know, we'll get off my soapbox here. Factors. So there we go. All right. Hammond takes off. What are you thinking? I thought as he's running, he should fall down. But then also, I mean, the I don't hate it in this scenario. It puts us up enough that at that point of the game, I don't, I don't hate that for him. And he said afterward, I probably should have fallen down and said that into the camera. Again, that's so hard to like say a guy's sprinting for the touchdown because he's not necessarily expecting that on the play. It's not like we're on the five-yard line and hey Neil at the one if you break through uh so I don't want to kill him from that I don't know if that's a coaching corner they could have told him that and he just ignored it or maybe they didn't tell him because we're so far away from the end zone but would you have wanted to see him fall down yeah 100 percent, 100 percent fall down and this should be where you get in the huddle and you tell the guy as soon as you get the first down fall down that's literally the conversation you cross those sticks you fall down because the game is over 100 percent of the time he introduced a situation where the game is not over 100% of the time. And, of course, Dan Mullen right away addressed this with him. Hammond's a smart guy. I do understand, like we've said before, that's a huge moment in the game. You've sort of been coming back the whole game. You put it away. But it's a funny moment, too, Alan, coaching coaching corner-wise, why I like it. If you're Mark Stoops, you're on the sideline praying your guy does not tackle him. Right. Which he almost did on the 10-yard line. He almost got Hammond. And if you're Dan Mullen, you're running on the side saying, fall down, fall down, fall down. So neither coach got the right response from their player. Kentucky right. guys should have pulled off and let him score. Hammond should have fallen down. It's a coaching corner thing because, of course, Dan Mullen addressed it immediately afterwards, said a hey, great touchdown, next time fall down. Hammond, of course, addresses it, which is correct because if you can get a guaranteed win, you take it. All right, this one. These are the ones that drive me the most crazy. Right. There's a minute and 44 seconds left. Kentucky has just run their first down of play. At this point in time, things feel bleak again for us because they're driving right down the field. It's now second down and six from our 25-yard line, and the clock is running. Alan, you are the coach. What do you do? Well, you have to start thinking about preserving enough time for your offense to actually score. And I don't know that Dan didn't do that. He obviously was thinking about he started calling timeout. So this is a little bit of a metric of how much time do you want to give them now versus how much do I want to keep for myself. I don't think this is the worst scenario, but I don't think it was optimized. I know that's what you're looking for in this scenario. Well, let's let's play it out. All right. So at this point in time, I believe we had two timeouts left. Is that correct? Maybe three timeouts left? I'm not sure. We should look that up. But we're going to roll with this because I think, I think it's two. But regardless, there's a minute 44 left. All right. 
So if Kentucky gets a first down, right, first down, it's going to, let's say that you don't call any more timeouts. So clock runs down to a minute. Now it's third down and three. They get a first down and there's 50 seconds left. First down on the next play, timeout. 45 seconds left. Second down, timeout. Third down, take a knee. All the way down to five seconds left. Kentucky calls timeout because it's game over. The game is over. Right. So the situation, as I recall it, is we are in a game over situation if we don't stop them on that set of downs, which means now you are selling out on that set of downs or you're simply praying we stop the field goal. So what do we do? Minute 44, players run. Tick, 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 tick. All the way down to 110. No play has been run yet. We call timeout. So we effectively do, we fix our bad situation, but man, we just let 34 seconds go off the clock for no benefit. So in my opinion, call timeout right away. Now it's second and six. They run a play. Call timeout again. Now it's third down and something. Right, and you get the ball back with whatever time is left. And again, if there's three timeouts left, we apologize for our sloppy laziness for not checking it. We're deep into the pod here. But regardless, I think the key here is what you said. Your first thought as a coach is always, where are we in this game? And if they get another first down, can they run the whole clock out and kick a field goal? That's what we want you to focus on. You know, it's a thought that's got to be there. The answer to that question was, yes, they could. So our back is up against the wall where now we're saying, if they do get the field goal and we go down, what's our best case scenario? having the most amount of time possible. That conversation clearly occurred during that TikTok down to 110, which is why they called it. Obviously, you've got to improve upon that. Somebody, whether it's one of those assistants in the booth, has got to be telling Dan that, hey, Dan, here's the deal. Uh, we're in this situation. We need to be calling timeouts immediately. If they run the ball or the clock's not stopped, they're calling timeout. Okay, Dan goes, great, let's do it. That got missed. They caught it at the end. It wound up not mattering because they missed the field goal. But this was a huge moment in the game because this could have been the difference between giving Trask a shot versus outright losing. Had we not called timeouts at all or called them too late and gotten no reward or Kentucky simply gets a first down, which was, you know, thankful the defense stopped him here anyway. And I think a lot of Kentucky fans frustrated with their play calling. In well, that I think maybe Dan knew that they were going to miss the field goal because the name of Kentucky's kicker was Chance Poor. That's not a pun on my part. Uh, that was literally his name. And so maybe just Dan looked at the roster and was like, it doesn't really matter. He's going to miss it. And he was right. So he outcoached and cornered us. All right, bright spots, Alan. Give me some of your bright spots. I'm going to go back to David Reese. I already mentioned him as being the key from last year this year. He's the SEC Defensive Player of the Week. When we when I watched him on film, he was even more impressive. He made a couple of great tackles, extremely aggressive in places where he needed to be to stop the run. Again, he has his limitations in the past game, but we would not have won that game with anybody else in there. He's played excellently this year so far. So I want to give him a shot. Because he's kind of, you know, he's very reliable. And so you often don't mention him because you're just counting on him as a constant. But he was so important for us in this game. Yeah, he's a victim of his own success. And hugely important despite the fact that he struggled in the past game. He he saved us in the run game and then sean davis of course uh he watched the film on sean davis not only does he play safety he plays man defense from a variety of positions he's not just playing man against the same guy he'll man against the most interior guy he'll man against the slot guy he goes against the x and the y he plays great against the run he's a a tackle saver on the back end he's getting he's running routes for guys getting picks i mean fan the versatility of this guy is absolutely fantastic he was a recruit people were excited about, always a little bit undersized as a safety, but he's really coming to his own right now. 
And that's playing with much more confidence. That's, that's paying key. huge dividends for us. Having a safety, as we've said all along on this pod, that can make plays, two picks in that game, a lot of good tackles, changes the way you play the game. And of course, the hero of the game, the MVP, Kyle Trask. Can't say enough about this guy. I think it's very interesting nationally, if you were to pull up most of the news articles on Sunday and Monday, they did not talk that much about Trask. It was sort of a Franks goes down, Gator season in question, rally to win, which to me is a huge disservice to this guy. I think a lot of that has to do with the injury that that Franks served. It's hard to write glowingly about someone else when someone else is taken out in that fashion. But I'm really excited for Trask to have his shot. He's been a career backup. You don't know a lot about him. His whole life, he's been a backup. And finally, he's on the eve again of being a starter. But what he did on Saturday is a special moment for him, no matter how this season goes. And and a memory I think we'll all have of, of beating Kentucky, which used to not matter, but it certainly seems to matter more. Matter this now. year, for sure. Okay, so this begs the question here, and I've gotten this from some people. Should Dan Mullen have been playing Kyle Trask all along? This is a great question, and we always caveat this by saying we're not in practice every day. Right. And I've also had long discussions in the pod, Alan, where you and I have gone back and forth on practice players versus game players. Now there's a big difference, right? And gunslingers are almost certainly much better in games because the reward is greater because they get a chance to win. In practice, picks are always a loss. No one likes to pick in practice. What are you doing? It's a mistake. In the game, you throw one pick, but then have two or three hero touchdowns at the end. The pick seems insignificant. He is that kind of guy. But two years ago on this very pod, I came on the show and said, hey, I got to watch practice. I was doing the pro flag football stuff. And I said there was no doubt that Trask was by far the best passer on that roster. And it's clear to me now that's also still true. So let's assume that's definitely true. We then have to assume the deficiencies, the interceptions I'm sure he throws during practice, the lack of running, which I'm going to go with, and I'm going to stake my claim right here. Right. So should Mullen have played Trask all along? Yes, if he were me. On my pod, I've tried to go through this. I am different than Dan Mullen. My offensive philosophy is much more aggressive, much more passing-oriented, a lot of vertical two-on-one routes. Dan Mullen, as well chronicled, conservative, east-west, three, three and a half yards per play, does not want to attack vertically except five or six times a game. Fundamentally different than what I would do. Fundamentally different than what Urban Meyer became at Ohio State. So this is Dan Mullen 1.0, Urban got to like 4.0, there's still Dan over here. So what does that mean for me? I think one of the simple reasons that Trask has not played all along is because he's not really an athletic runner. Or He's not terrible at yeah. running, but I'm going to go with that. I think there's a lot of other reasons, but I'm going to keep hanging in my hat here until Dan proves me wrong because, Alan, Dan played into this in the presser by saying, we're going to play both quarterbacks. Right. It just leads me to believe that he wants to have a running quarterback more than anything else. Trask is not that guy. He's a willing runner, yes. I'm a willing runner. I feel like Franks primarily has played all along because of that. And again, so this is what I'm going to try to say to you in the audience. Should Dan Mullen have played Trask all along? If he's looking for the best passer, absolutely he should have. He should have taken his lumps with him and grown with Kyle Trask. If he's looking for Dan Mullen's strategy, you can make an argument, no, he shouldn't have. And the strategy worked well, right? We got 10 wins last year. We're luckily undefeated this year. Again, I'm not going to justify that because this is where I'm trying to draw this line in the sand, Allen, between me and Dan Mullen. For Dan's strategy, if I'm practice all the time, maybe it's so important to me to have a guy that can keep plays alive and not turn the ball over. I deem it worth it. That's not how I coach or play. So I have a hard time agreeing with that mindset, but I can, I can help defend it. So I'm going to hedge my bets and say, yes, if he's looking for the highest possible output. If he wanted the Gators to become as good as they possibly could become while possibly also losing more, 
which is more risky for Dan Mullen, he should have played Trask. If the answers are the other ones I mentioned, you can make an argument he should not right. have. Well, the, the short answer is also we don't know. Let's. I think we'd have to watch Kyle Trask play three or but four more no games. that's no fun, Alan. Give well, the sure. people an opinion. But I'm also going to say, as I completely understand, I think part of the reason that Kyle Trask didn't play is because he hasn't played. So if you're Dan Mullen, you've got a guy with some college experience who has the tools and abilities that Franks has, and you develop quarterbacks. Well, if they're close, I think you have to choose Franks. I don't see a scenario where Dan didn't choose Franks. And because he did choose Franks, it almost means that he continues playing him. Because now you got a guy who's played games in your system. You've won 10 games. Hey, there was a little bit of uptick in the year. I It would have been so against every kind of football coach mentality to then switch that guy out at that point. Kelly Bryant versus Trevor Lawrence. Okay, Go. so I agree with that. Now, this, Kelly Bryant doesn't fit exactly what, what Clemson wants to do either, and also Trevor Lawrence is maybe like a generational talent. Uh, Kyle Trask is not. But so you have to – and that people have rightly praised Dabo for being ballsy enough to do that. So – Maybe just that Felipe was the known and Trask was the unknown. Now, whether that is, I don't know, the right strategy or not, I totally understand the Dan Mullen as well as coming in here. Our roster was not this complete, perfect thing where you just have to choose which QB do I like more. There there are so many other factors. So I'm even if Kyle Trask comes out and lights it up the next four games, I don't think I necessarily want to say, Dan Mullen, you're an idiot for not having played him this whole time. Now, we can certainly question it, but I don't think it was necessarily like an irresponsible choice with where we were last year and where we were last year affects where we are this year. Yeah, that's why this question is complicated. I thought the Clemson answer you just gave was a good one. Yes, generational talent, but also the bigger key is Dabo Sweeney's vision for a quarterback was not Kelly Bryant. Right. And I think that helped him make a change to recognize, yes, I probably can't beat Alabama this way, but also... He's deficient with how I want to play anyway. And I think right now, none of these quarterbacks have what Dan Mullen wants. But the question becomes, would the best coach, would Bill Belichick tailor something to this guy? And it's fair to hold any coach to that standard because it's good to know. And that's what I think we're doing here. We're simultaneously saying, do I think in an optimal expected value situation that if Trask continues to play well, proving that he's the better quarterback, Mullen should have played him? Yes, because I know that him being a better passer, I believe, has consistently showed up. But it's too early to say that. So if you're thinking that, I think you will have an answer to that question. When we get to look at Trask's entire body of work this season, we will have a much better answer to that question. I think, Alan, the answer is probably more of a coin flip. I think it's closer than we think it is because I think yeah, there's I things Trask that aren't as good. Again, as much as I dog Franks for a lot of things, we saw the best of, of Trask. That's what he's best at. There's a lot of other things the quarterback has to do. We're going to find out what happens. I'm excited about it. But again, complicated question. Too early to know the answer to that question. Good to be asking that question because that is how you evaluate coaches. Clemson has a national championship banner hanging because Dabo Sweeney did something very ballsy, as you said, to win a national title, not just to win games. It remains to be seen if Dan Mullen is going to take the approach to win titles versus win a lot of games. All right. He was a first-year coach here at Florida. There's so many other factors. Dabo is not. He's a guy who's already won a national championship. Don't so, sleep on that part. That's yeah. a big deal. Okay. So I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, uh, but there's a video of one of Kentucky's premier players. I think his name is Cash Daniel. 
appearing to twist Kyle Trask's ankle in the pile. And you can see that Trask takes some umbrage to this as he gets up and gets in his face. And then, of course, Daniel gets in his face. Uh, thoughts on this? This happens in football from time to time. It was really egregious, though. I mean, there was a lot of ankle twisting going on. Thankfully, nothing happened. All I can say about this is that just goes to show you how much Kyle Trask pissed Kentucky off. They could feel the win. They knew they were going to win, and now Trask is is beating them. And there's so much frustration towards this guy. He's trying to rip his ankle off. But if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's it's egregious. It's wrong. I don't think the NCAA, like the NFL, has like a post-punishment based upon video system. It was ugly, though. Yeah, and this this brings me, gives me flashbacks to FSU. Um, I'm blanking on his name. Darnell Dockett. Darnell Dockett, my most one of my most hated players, twists Ernest Graham's knee in the pile on a similar situation, and he's out the next week against Tennessee. And we probably win that game with Ernest Graham. We didn't lose a game with him. And maybe cost us a shot at playing for the national title. So... I have no patience for dirty play. I understand the frustration, but that is just hot garbage. If he was doing that. Now, if he wasn't and then just trust got the wrong end of it, whatever. But I, I would have no tolerance for that as a coach on my team. If that's my guy, he's not playing the next game for sure. And maybe we're going to talk about other stuff too. Yeah. Sportsmanship should still mean something. And that, that's just, that's not what you want to say. That's not like, that's not, Oh, he, the moment or I, ran too hard or hit a guy a little bit late or whatever. That's after the play is done, you getting mad and twisting this guy's ankle. That that would piss me off. Yeah, you can't do that. All right, let's move to the week three national games. By let's the way, we're on pace, Alan, for our longest episode ever. Let's do it, James. So I hope you guys are just thoroughly enjoying this content. We're an hour and 40 some odd minutes in the podcast, and we haven't even talked about Tennessee, one of our chief rivals. Before we get to Tennessee, there were some games that happened last week. A couple of them were impactful. Let's start with uh, maybe a not-so-impactful one, but Washington State takes care of business at Houston, 31-24. This is probably a better game that I wish I would have watched, um, but I don't know if we'd learn too much about either team. No, I think Washington State survives the game they tend to sometimes lose, like we mentioned. Alabama, 47, does not cover the spread at a very cagey South Carolina with a freshman quarterback slinging it out there, 47-23. Cagey, I think, I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear Alabama's side of this things we really look at this their their lack of uh, playmakers at linebacker may be rearing its ugly head in this game I think it affected them big time especially with the South Carolina quarterback able to pass Alan my favorite takeaway from this game was Will Muschamp afterwards gets asked a lot of questions about the aggressiveness which they played on offense he said well yes when you're playing Alabama it's a different animal you have to be that aggressive but you do whatever it takes to win each game so I would not expect us to continue to do these things going forward which of course is to the chagrin <laughs> of every South Carolina that's fan un- and anyone unreal. who's ever known Will Muschamp to know wow everyone's so excited about what you've done and let's just make sure to pour water all over that and say oh wait a minute wait a minute against a normal team we won't do that Stanford 27 UCF 45 Allen big time result for UCF it was like 38 to 14 at halftime Crazy. I mean, you thought Stanford might cover this. I thought Stanford might cover this. I don't know if I picked them. I think I picked UCF, but Stanford is not having this year, and UCF looks pretty good. And we talked about that. I picked Stanford to finish out to the top 25. I thought they were fraudulent from the beginning, but this UCF team looks really good. I want to make two comments here. One, I can't stand the UCF fan base. They drive me crazy. But two, as I've said before, I'm all for UCF winning out and causing chaos in the playoff because I won eight teams. I'm serving my own selfish interest, but I won eight teams. This is America. This is a free market, kind of, not really. We're pretty limited in the free market world nowadays. But let UCF play a real team 
in a playoff of eight. Let's see what they can do. They dismantled Stanford this week. They have another interesting game against Pitt. All right, 24 USC, number 24 USC, 27 at BYU in overtime. BYU wins this game 30-27. Wow, BYU, I mean, the crazy schedule, as we were talking about, they're in a game every week. Uh, if you thought USC had righted the ship, uh, apparently not. No, and that's what I think I take away from this one is Clay Helton, he got to go. Number 19, Iowa, 18 in the Alasico at Ohio, Iowa State, 17. Iowa State drops a fair catch with a minute and 40 seconds painful. left to have that a chance at home to go get a field goal to win. El Asico. I thought at first that Iowa had kicked only field goals to get to 18, and that would have been the most Iowa impossible. But they won on a punt. So maybe that was the most Iowa impossible. Congratulations to Iowa. That's got to hurt if you're a Cyclone fan. This game score, not indicative of actually how it was. Number one, Clemson 41, Syracuse 6. But this was a close game for a long time. Syracuse is in Clemson's red zone four or five times in this game. Came up with absolutely no points. It was well contested until maybe the middle to the end of the fourth quarter. Uh, yeah, this is this is what fascinating right now. Is this, I don't know, Clemson not quite as good as maybe we'd hope they'd be? Are they scuffling a little bit? Just that repeat national title year where everyone... And, it's just a little less motivated. They're not going to be tested at all in the ACC, so we won't know until the playoff. We won't. Trevor Lawrence definitely not living up to the expectations I think he set for himself That's, right now. Those were pretty high expectations. Correct, and I think he's struggling like you'd expect a sophomore to struggle. I also, like we said, think teams have game planned for the things he struggles to do. It's not a huge knock on him, but he loves to throw deep balls into man coverage which is why the NFL will like him. I think he does it too often. That's kind of what's hurting him. Florida State, 24. Number 25, Virginia, led by Bronco Mendenhall, 31. This game ends out with Florida State, four seconds left on the two-yard line. They could knee it. I mean, they could spike it. They could run a play with their quarterback. They could do anything. They could do something. What do they choose to do? I guess a wildcat. I mean, they didn't quite get lined up enough time to clock it. It was like a microcosm of their entire tenure. Uh, if you're looking for some fun on the internet, go to uh, willytaggartforever.com. Some fun things in there. I think it's from the makers of uh, Fire Ron Zook, but it's it's an endorsement. It's a healthy endorsement of keeping Willie Taggart forever. Yeah, Willie Taggart forever, WTF. I love it. Oklahoma 48 at UCLA. 14. I mean, we just put this on here just because we want to chronicle UCLA. They are just hot garbage, and Oklahoma continues to oppress. Oklahoma looks good. Lincoln Riley continues to be the quarterback whisperer. And if you're handicapping the Heisman right now, it's Alabama quarterback versus Alabama quarterback out of the gate very early. Very interesting. Oh, this one hurts my family. Oh, man. Maryland 17, Temple 20. Maryland was on the one-yard line on four different drives in this game and came away with no points we're all ready to talk about a huge game maryland at penn state that definitely takes some of the air out of this as great as maryland looked temple has their number that's tough this is a tough loss for them this hurts bad because they should have won this game it's one of those games where you're early in the tenure thinking we should have won we could have won a million different ways so you don't feel like sick about it but it's hard to have special seasons and you want to be three you no know, you want the yeah. nation to look at you and you miss the chance to if kind you of lose a, a close one to Ohio State you're like man we're right there but man that's this is a tough pill to that hurts right Arizona State Herm Edwards Michigan State on the road 
the CEO model. They get the win 10 to 7, a wild game at the end where Michigan State makes a field goal. They have all these back and forth challenges. They say it's good. They go back and look at it again, take it off the board. Arizona State wins when he misses. Crazy times, but Herm Edwards is 3 and 0. I think Herm out Michigan State, Michigan State in this game. I'll, I'll continue to have to walk back my I can't believe they hired Herm Edwards. He, He's being effective, at least. Yeah, the CEO model working very well for Herm and for Ed Orgeron. All right, All right let's let's do the SEC roundup. This is an extremely boring SEC roundup because of the nature of this slate. But an interesting one first off the top, K-State 31, Mississippi State 24. Yikes. This is a bad look for my boy, Joe Moorhead. Kansas State now undefeated. They got North Dakota State's old coach in there. Big win for him, but... You can't lose to a guy in year one of his tenure at Kansas State when you're in year two of your tenure at home at Mississippi State. Yeah, K-State looks good in this win. Mississippi State, still a lot of holes. All right, Southeast Louisiana, 29, Ole Miss, 40. My boy, Matt Luke, getting <laughs> your it Your boy giving up 29. And prep, prepper, it doesn't matter. He's preparing for the big game this weekend. Okay, Colorado State, 34, Arkansas, 55. That's a lot of points. That's a good win for Arkansas. They, they lose to Ole Miss and get an out-of-conference win. Yeah, it's Colorado State. They're not very good, but if you're Arkansas, I think you're taking wins whenever you can get them. Agreed. Kent State 16, Auburn 55. One Guillermo Diaz went to this game. Told me he had a wonderful time there with his family, uh, but no, nothing to report here. Lamar, three. Lamar didn't do so great. Just one guy, though, I guess. Versus Texas A&M putting up 62. Yeah, my great-grandfather is named Lamar. That's all I think about in this game. Nothing else here. <laughs> Northwestern State, 14, LSU, 65. LSU is setting themselves up for another impactful game down the road. Joe Burrow slinging the ball around. Yeah, these are some big numbers here. Southeast Missouri State, 0, Missouri, 50. Everyone's just waiting for Missouri to play a real game. They should have been undefeated like 6 or 7-0 because their schedule is that front-loaded, but they blew it against Wyoming. Arkansas State, 0, UGA, 55. Yeah, classic. Why are we playing these games in college football, Allen? Chattanooga, 0, Tennessee, 45. Hey, this is a game where Tennessee, I saw an article where they legitimately wrote, we should feel better about ourselves. We're getting better. This is a good win. And with that, we bring ourselves, finally, after a lot of analysis, we hope you enjoyed it. It was fun for us doing it. We've gotten a lot of positive feedback on the Megasodes. So if you're someone who's not giving us positive feedback, I've got a theory. It's because you're not listening all the way until the end. And that's why you're not (laughs) writing us, because we're asking you now, Hey, do you like these megasodes? But here it is, the mega megasode. Tennessee game coming in at 1-2, and two, Allen. We're 3-0. and oh. We're favored by 14 now. Do you feel differently about this Tennessee team given BYU's win over USC? Slightly. I, and I thought BYU was a solid team. I thought that was not a bad loss for them. The Georgia State stuff still just hangs over this program like a cloud. I... They're probably not as bad as they looked against them right now. But I don't know that we can read too much against them playing Chattanooga. Uh, Actually, there's a very interesting article in The Athletic about someone spending some time with the Chattanooga staff that they scouted Tennessee. And what showed up, they they saw Tennessee's deficiencies very clearly. Um, And hopefully our coaches are seeing that too, because they're still there. Um, Yeah. it's another data point, though, that BYU win. That BYU is probably a pretty decent team this year. Yeah, you should feel. I feel a little differently. I think after seeing the film, I actually feel quite a bit differently, which we'll get a chance to talk about. But first, I want to give an update 
of my guy. Yeah, Little Peyton. Little Peyton. If you've been following the podcast from the beginning, you've heard the story of Little Peyton. I will give you the Cliff Notes version. In 2006, some friends and I went to the game. They had this incredible giveaway. It's this like two-foot-tall water bottle that looks like a Tennessee linebacker, and we nicknamed him Little Peyton. That 06 game was a thriller. Dallas Baker catches a touchdown. We win 21-20. They miss a field goal at the end to beat Great us. Great game. If you've ever been to a game in Knoxville, especially when they're good, you know how venomous they can be. So we took Little Peyton as a war trophy. Little Peyton won a million games in a row until we finally lost one against Tennessee. He's right at the ship. Which was sad. But he's right at the ship. He's back on a win streak. And so we always talk about Little Peyton. You'll see him on the page uh, on Twitter and elsewhere. He's our guy. He's here. He's with us. He's He's in spirit when he's not here, and he basically lives at Helen in a closet all year long until he comes out for his week of his glory. triumphant return. And he's here for the week. We're celebrating him. So, Alan, give me an overview of this current Tennessee team. So this is Jeremy Pruitt. You've heard us talk about him a lot. So he's in his second year now. Uh, interesting enough, they they stole, essentially, UGA's offensive coordinator, Jim Chaney. So he's in his first year. Some UGA fans were upset about that. Others were not. So that maybe says a little bit about Jim Chaney. Derek Ansley is their first as a defense coordinator, formerly with the Raiders and at Bama with Pruitt. Also, I guess a co-DC, Chris Rumpf, you might recognize the name, formerly UF defensive line coach. This is his second year there. Their five-year recruiting talent composite is 15th. We're 16th. So talent-wise, pretty close. They got four or five stars. We have one, but he doesn't play. Um, so last year, we won very handily. 47-21. They've got 16 returning starters. 10 offense, 6 on defense. That's a pretty high number. Um, overall, their strengths, you know, not too many of them, I guess, considering the season they've had. Um, they do they have been getting some yards. They do have a nice pair of running backs, Ty Chandler and Eric Gray, and a pair of wide receivers, Jawan Jennings and Marquez Callaway. We talked about them a lot last year, those two, of maybe giving us some trouble. They did not. Also, a decent pass rush. So we'll see if that shows up on film weaknesses run defense can we take advantage and they've been turning the ball over a lot james when you looked at their offense on film what stood out to you so obviously different attack from what we saw jared garantano run last year now that jim cheney is there they're they're multiple so they're going to run lots of different sets they're not going to have any certain identity they're balanced 50 50 run pass they want to keep you guessing and their real goal is to try to mess with you with personnel groups alan so they'll, they'll put a personnel group out there of one running back, one tight end, and three receivers. And then the next play, they'll run a totally different kind of set. So they can go power, then they'll spread you out and go with the spread passing concept. They're trying to catch you in mismatches. It's very much a matchup-based offense. The negative side of Jim Chaney for Georgia fans and others is that he tends to get overly conservative when his teams have a lead. And you've seen this with Georgia against Alabama and other teams. You saw it, in fact, if you watched the BYU game with Tennessee, when they blew that lead at the end, they were up convincingly. They sort of go into a little bit of a predictable shell. right? And so the way I like to look at this is when I'm looking at offensive coordinators, do they follow the numbers game? So if a team is loading the box, are they willing to pass, which is what you should do in those situations? Or will they just bullheadedly run it because they're old school football coaches that say, we should be able to pick this up? Jim Chaney is more of that when the game's on the line. He will run into, you know, disadvantaged fronts or advantaged fronts when he just feels like he needs to. And that, I think, hurts him in big games. On film, I will say, actually, surprisingly, Alan, the Tennessee's offense looks pretty good. 
They've had a lot of missed opportunities in these games. They're competent. They look a lot like Georgia when he was there. They run the ball well. They have two good running backs. They get a good push from their line at times. Garantano looks good if he can hit his first read. He's kind of like Franks in that regard, but strong, accurate thrower. He's slow to get through his progressions. That should be something that's important for us because we should be able to cover pretty well if we have our full complement of DBs in there. But I want to note that watching them on film led to a more elevated opinion of them from me than one where I thought, wow, this is kind of really the pushover I've assembled in my mind. This is a formidable football team. Uh, I think that it may be true they're not getting enough credit given a horrible loss to Georgia State. But on film, on offense especially, I think they can they can do some things, I think, to teams. I think they can do some things to us. And I think specifically look for them to try to create those same matchups against Reese. They like to get guys out of the backfield. They like to create matchups. That's what the offense does. They've seen that on film and then look for them to try to pick on a safety not named Davis. I think they'd be comfortable getting any one of our safeties into coverage if they have to. So expect them to feel good about that. Florida has one really simple task in this game, Alan. We've got to control the line of scrimmage. And by control, I don't mean dominate. I can't expect this defensive line necessarily get in the backfield and kill them. But Jim Cheney offenses rely on play action. If you allow Garantano to play action, it's where their big plays come from. He's not quite good enough to just sit there and spread the field on you and pick you apart. He needs play action to work. This is old school Bama, Georgia under Fromm. He's just a super poor man version of that, but they can do it. And if they're able to control the line of scrimmage, that will put us in a tough, tough spot. So look for us to really, again, I think a 5-2 formation here is going to be something we employ more. Look for heavier front sets to try to win on first and second down because we cannot allow them on second down to play action us, second and five, second and fours. That will hurt us. I expect us, again, to play some heavier sets. We have to play some 2-3-4 probably due to our personnel. But look for some 5-2 to sneak in there, five down linemen. Look to see if we choose to try to counter some of UT's heavier personnel sets to give us a chance to maybe play single high and come down to man. But again, I think the takeaway for Tennessee's offense, Allen, they actually look pretty good on film. They look much better than Kentucky's offense looked on film. Kentucky, you know, is kind of high school gimmicky, but Tennessee's offense, I think, is getting better each and every week. It's going to be really interesting to see if their offensive line can hold up. They were getting abused by Georgia State. Uh, BYU... Not a necessary stalwart at that either. So I think our defensive line can be effective. That you're right. That will be one of the stories of the game. All right, talk to me what they're doing on defense. So defensively, they're a multiple defense. They don't run either a three four or a four three. We've chronicled Pruitt before. If you weren't listening last year, here are the cliff notes. There are many Alabama with what they try to do. They just don't have the athletes. This will be entirely different for Trask than what he saw last week. They're going to play a lot more mix of zone and man. A staple of a Nick Saban defense is you cannot tell if it's zone or man pre-snap. They'll run a lot of matching concepts where depending on the routes rerun, they'll, they'll morph into a man, but you will not know until post-snap who's guarding who. This is an entirely different challenge for Trask. Tennessee is not good enough yet, whether it's time in the system or the right players to do this very, very well. But it is confusing. It can mess you up. I think what's really hurting them is teams are able to run all over them. And so you're not always having to throw in bad situations. But they're very aggressive. They'll blitz aggressively. They'll come after you on third down. Uh, so expect a challenge in the passing game from Trask with regards to complexity. And that should be something that's very fun for me to watch. I love watching games like this. Uh, to really evaluate how well is he reading these things. I expect Pruitt to test him 
based upon what he's seen so far on film. Yeah, this is going to be fascinating. Can Trask complete with the same kind of efficiency against Tennessee? My guess is no. And I have a very strong feeling that he's going to throw a couple picks into some coverages that he's not ready for, like you said. This is a situation where it's almost like the opposite of Kentucky. We thought, you know what? They're weak against the pass, so maybe we can take advantage of that. So, but they were strong against the run. Kentucky, Tennessee is like the maybe the mirror of that in some sense. Not totally because they're not as talented in some areas, but our ability to run the ball. Like if we can't run the ball and they can get weird behind in the back end, we could really struggle. Um, and this is gonna be fascinating to see what our coaches do with our quarterbacks. How much playing time does Emory Jones get? Is it is it like Kind of how he's being used before. Just a couple packages of stuff to put on film that you've got to prepare for when he's out there. Give him something, I don't know, just to mix it up a little bit. Give him a different look. Or does he play a third of the snaps, half the snaps? Are we in that type of situation? And is that effective? If it is, maybe that's good news. If it's not, that's that's going to be tough for us if he's going to play that many snaps. Or... Maybe Kyle Trask comes out and throws three picks in seven attempts, and we have to play Emory Jones. So much on the table for this. Really interesting. Let me ask you this. this is, we're not to the game predictions. Do you expect us to be able to run the ball against Tennessee? I don't know. You know, watching on film, I just don't know. I think here's why I don't know. I think Tennessee is going to load up to defend the pass. I think this will be the first time in several years, Alan, where I expect a defense to prepare to stop the pass, which tells you a lot about the difference that Trask brings to the offense. You had mentioned, I think, which is a good point, Trask is more similar to Franks in that he can run all the same stuff, which he can, but he's obviously better at some things, worse at others. I do expect Tennessee to focus on stopping our passing and counting on, kind of like Kentucky did, being able to stop the run naturally. They're going to want us to run the ball. They're going to hope we run the ball. So that's going to be a fantastic chess match to watch. Do we play into that? Do we continue to try to run into fronts if we're not successful? Or do we trust Trask to throw into coverages? Really interesting to watch this week to see what goes on with that. I think Florida ought to do this, Alan. I think Kroll should play a lot more in this game, even if we primarily use him as a blocker. I would love to see us do something we don't do. Forget about all the personnel matching up. This is not the NFL, right? A lot of times we're not going to throw the ball to P. Ryan. We're not going to throw the ball to Davis. We're not going to throw the ball to Pierce. Instead, just come out five wide or four wide with your best receivers. Make them match you. Use Kroll as a blocker. Or if you've got P. Ryan, motion him out, bring him back in the block. Give Trask time. I know our receivers can get open on Tennessee if we're given time. I hope we employ a tactic like that. That would be a change from how we typically want to run things, we love to wind up staying, you know, kind of um, personnel agnostic to where we can move out and flex you. But if we're not hitting those matchups, let's just say, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pull this in here. We're going to make this happen. Kroll can catch passes too. He is a credible threat. However, I think buying time for us will be key in this game. Right. And a guy who I think was expecting, I don't know what he was expecting. People were expecting to play a lot more is Gamble, who's more, I think of a, I don't know if he's a traditional tight end because he's not a guy who's a road grader as a blocker, but thought to be more credible as a blocker and also a decent pass catcher. 
Maybe he gets a lot more looks because he, he's not like he can't run around and catch the ball. Maybe they were thinking about the more high end with Pitts and Kroll. Maybe a little bit of a safer strategy gamble out there who you still have to respect as you know a route runner and as a guy who can catch the ball. And if they don't, he'll be open when they release him. But yeah, some interesting tweaks. Like what does the offense, what is the personnel packages? What does the strategy look like? I, Mullen showed in the fourth quarter he's willing to go a heavy pass-run ratio, which would have been a question mark. So he's at least done it once. And that was, you know, in a particular situation. We were behind. We need to throw the ball. We were excelling at it. I don't think we're going to come out in that kind of ratio. We're still going to try to see if we can run the ball. If we can't, maybe we do go to that pass-heavy ratio, and I think we could be successful at it. Well, I think the benefit of bringing the extra tight ends, Alan, is it helps your run game. Indeed. So you're able, you're able to buy time, but you're also able to say if Tennessee wants to load up against the pass, put them in a situation to clarify what they're going to do. Will they bring on an extra linebacker in that situation? Will they take a coverage guy off on the back end? Because if so, I'm going to take Van Jefferson or Grimes or almost any of our receivers against any matchup they get, and you're creating more space on the field by putting a slower player out there. I like that adjustment. I hope to see it. As far as both quarterbacks go, this will be interesting. I believe when Dan says that, he's going to use Emory Jones, because Emory can still throw, as more of a, a running style if there's certain fronts they're playing. Uh, it's extra preparation, like we talked about. So we can look at film, as people have looked at film for a long time, and say, okay, well, when Emory comes in, they're going to rotate their defense down and play more of the run and play man coverage here and change these things there. But by introducing Emory in certain spots... You're hoping that you catch them confused. They don't switch fast enough. These are not NFL players, right? And then Emory can throw by the old play calling ourselves into points where, okay, if I know I bring Emory in, they rotate down to this, I'm going to get a look here. And I think because Dan, I think the way his brain works, it just works better with running quarterbacks. I think he naturally thinks about creating points with the threat of the run. I don't know that's necessary, but I'll tell you one thing. Trask, as much as I loved seeing what he's seen, there shouldn't be loyalty to any one of these guys yet. If Trask is struggling, Emery should come in and get a shot because Indeed. it sounds like from all practice reports that wherever they are, whether one's up or one's down, there's not like a massive gulf of difference between them. And again, as much as I love what Trask is doing, if he's laying an egg out there, Emery should come in. So maybe if maybe if nothing else, it's a chance to say, hey, look, I'm not married to Trask like I was Franks yet. Someone's going to win this job again. Let's not make Jones feel like he's second-class citizen because, hey, practice hard you could win this job who knows what's happening what you think is healthy to have right and who knows if Kyle Trask is around next year yeah a lot of unknowns here so a lot of interesting things to watch with regards to how that's handled it would be dangerous I think if Trask is doing well and Jones is coming in taking snaps I've never liked that so we'll keep an eye on how they manage that all right penalties Florida as always every single year we've done the podcast high Tennessee actually on the lower end partially because I think they haven't played elite competition yet uh, they played smaller teams, so we'll give it their turnover margin. I think this will be key in this game, Alan. Tennessee has turned the ball over a ton. It's been the primary reason right. why they've lost the games they've lost. If they continue to do so, I think this will lead to an easy win for us. I'm sure they're going to spend all of their time trying to stop that. Problem is, I don't think you can just turn off the turnover faucet. Injuries this is interesting. It's always hard to know what Dan Mullen is really saying. C.J. Henderson is going to be on the edge of playing, but we're hopeful. I don't know if that's caginess. Seems like Zuniga and Bernie and Greenard are all going to be available. Obviously, Kadarius Tony, Felipe Franks out for this game. 
Um, those are the guys you're going to look at. I'm sure there's a lot of dinged-up guys up and down the roster, but those are the notable names there. All right, James, give me your keys to victory for this game. All right, we'll start on the offensive side, which we chronicled just a minute ago, but we're going to have to be able to competently, not amazingly, competently run the ball to pull them out of what I expect to be a pass-heavy based defense. No matter who's quarterback with our offensive line, if we're having to throw into plus two or plus three coverage sections, it's going to be hard all day to score a lot of points. We have to be able to punish them for playing down numbers in the run game. I do not expect us to be running the ball a lot, nor should we if we're even numbers in the run game. So look for those things. Count the numbers in the box. If we're seeing even, look for us to pass. I think that would be optimal to Trask. If they're under, we have to be able to run the ball. We've got to be able to gain at least three and a half, four, four and a half yards to be credible. You can't just keep throwing into bad fronts. That's not a good plan. Watch that on offense, on defense, line of scrimmage control. Not necessarily domination, but we've got to be able to get through. Their offensive line, like you mentioned, is not Kentucky's. It does have holes, but they are decent. They can play well at times. We have to limit play action passes. That's how they generate most of their yardage and control that line of scrimmage. So what I'm going to say here is first down and second down are crucial when you play Jim Cheney offenses. In the past, we've done a really good job against Georgia, putting them in third and seven, third and six, third and eight. They do not like that. When we struggle and they start getting you know, second and five, second and four, then we're in trouble. So watch very closely the battle on first and second down. I think it will dictate how well our defense does in this game. Those, to me, on offense and defense are the keys. I would agree with those strongly. I think the other part of this is Garantano does not scare me. Um, so put the pressure on him. Is Zuniga healthy? Is Greenard healthy? If so, we should have enough pass rush to really affect him. Are we getting home? So. You know, coming into this last game, we were leading the nation in sacks and we had one. And that was when they just left someone unblocked. Not having Zuniga out there was really big. I was wondering how much that would affect us. It affected us a lot. Is he healthy? If he is, I think that's a game changer for us. And then we'll see how Grantham wants to play this because he's been up against Cheney the last couple of years. Is he bringing pressure on early downs? I think that he will. I think that he doesn't respect Garantano in this system. And I think he'll give you the ball, either through a fumble or an interception. Do we pick up a couple of those turnovers? And then defensively, I mean, sometimes football is as simple as can you win the line of scrimmage, like you said. If their running backs are picking up four yards of carry, I think we're in trouble. Anything over that. Under that, I think we'll be okay. Um, they have some talent there. We'll see how they were, our, our coaching staff responds with hopefully a full complement of our defensive players. And are our defensive ca- tackles getting shoved around like they were against Kentucky? If they're able to hold hold their own, I think we're, we'll do really well in this game. Alan, I'm stoked about this game. It's, it's well known amongst the Gator Nation football podcast fan base that I love Tennessee Week. You do. I came into it kind of feeling down about Tennessee Week because it's just it was the way it was. And then... Trask comes in, and I watch film, and I'm hyped. I'm so hyped. I can't wait to see this. I love seeing the power T. They have playmakers. I think if you were sleeping on them like I was, if you watch them, they have legit playmakers. There's a reason why they have talent on this team that starts in place. They have talent. 
they're dysfunctional. They're a really dysfunctional family and football team, but they have plenty of talent to give us problems. I hope the talent they have is more of fun for us to watch, right? Marco Wilson and CJ Henderson versus their two best receivers. They're two very good running backs, you know, versus our linebackers. I hope to enjoy the matchups as we beat them rather than watching us struggle. With that, Alan, give me your score prediction for yet another edition of a September fall day against Tennessee. Yeah, this one's going to be at noon. Uh, so I hope that the fans and the players are ready for this. Often these noon kicks are a little sleepy. We do not want any sleepiness from this team. This is a hard one to pinpoint. I think this is one of the harder scores. Usually I kind of come in, I have a feel for one I pick. This feels like there's so much variance. I do think we're going to be able to turn the ball over. I do think Kyle Trask is going to put some points on the board. That would feel like the most optimal outcome to me. But I don't know if we're going to necessarily light it up. Uh, So I'm going to say 28-17. I like that score. I feel like if if my thoughts and, and feelings about the way Trask makes his progressions are true, I think that will open up the running game. I think Dan Mullen, as much as I dog him for the, the three yards and a cloud of dust mentality, he will do what needs to be done to win games. Uh, I think in this game we have advantages, our wide receivers versus their secondary, significant ones. I think Trask can take advantage of those. I like us to score points in this game. I, I think we can win this game. I'm going to go uh, Florida 35 and then Tennessee 17. So I think a similar score to last year. Uh, I do see ways where Tennessee could beat us in this game. I want to put that out there. But I do think as Vegas reflects that we're more than two scores better than them. And I want to say this, Alan. I said last week, if we didn't blow out Kentucky, the season would be would difficult and sad. I've got a little bit of a reset this week. Trask is going to be learning game experience situations, so you can't be as definitive depending on what happens in this game with what the rest of the season looks like. But I want to say this. If Trask can play a whole game making reads the way he did, stay mainly out of trouble while making some of those better throws, and let's say throw for 300 yards, a real 300 yards. Wow, a real 300 yards. Yeah, not like 300 where you throw three screen passes that go for 80 yards each. A real 300 yards, we could be in for a very interesting rest of the season. If he comes out and struggles, throws picks, can't handle some of the matchups they're going to give him, that's going to be indicative of a much different season. So it can't tell us for sure where we are yet, but I think this will be a building block to gauge what the rest of the season may look like. So this should be a fascinating game. And the other wild card here is that Trask hasn't started a game since he was a freshman in high school. Now, again, he's put into a pressure situation last week. It's not like Felipe got hurt in practice and then we're going to start a new guy. So we've seen him baptism by fire on the road in SEC. This should be a much more comfortable environment, obviously. But everybody's looking at them this week. Everybody's talking about him this week. Uh, that's a hard thing sometimes for a guy who hasn't experienced that. You saw the toll it took on Felipe Franks at times. So right now he's riding high. What does that look like if he starts to screw it up a little bit? Fascinating game. I'm so amped for this game. Can't wait to be there in the swamp for the first time this season. It's going to be excellent. So we'll see what happens. Let's let's talk about the national games, James. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, the first one. I, I don't know if we've ever had a one and two team that we've talked about so intensely. Um, but Louisville at FSU. FSU giving up eight points. Man. I mean, is it crazy to think that anytime FSU is giving anyone points that you should obviously just take the other side? I mean, Louisville's terrible, but I'm I'm taking I'm taking Louisville and the and the eight points. 
I want you to. Louisville was at least impressive enough against for me against Notre Dame, and I haven't watched them since. And FSU did take a game Virginia team, who's in the top 25 team, down to the very end that could have won that game. Man, did that – what is their mentality? This is going to be fascinating. Uh, I can't give up eight points for FSU, FSU to anybody. They might win the game, but I could never lay points with them. So I'll take Louisville. Kentucky at Mississippi State. Mississippi State favored by seven and a half. Does that surprise you? It doesn't because this is a matchup-based situation, and I think Mississippi State, at least Vegas thinks, has favorable matchups with Kentucky. I think that's more or less true, but Kentucky seems to be going in, a like you said, a solidified program direction. I think Mississippi State's asking a lot of questions about itself right now. You know, Joe Moorhead got tons of swagger. Tons of bravado. Came in more humble this year. Admitted he was too cocky. And now all of a sudden you're still drinking, you know, the humble Kool-Aid, so to speak. I, I don't know what to make of this Mississippi State team. I think they're at a weird little early crossroads. I think Kentucky, as hurt as they are about the game they lost, probably feels pretty good about themselves. This was not a year where they're going to win anything. I don't know. That line seems too big. I'm going to take Kentucky in the points. Here. Yeah, I'm going to take Kentucky here. But I, I do think Mississippi State... Um, if I had to bet just a straight money line, I would take them. Too many questions for me about Kentucky's state of mind losing that game. That could be more of a stunning punch than we give credit for. South Carolina at Missouri. Missouri favored by nine and a half. You're seeing a lot of what certain people liked about Missouri. And, and South Carolina, you come off, I think, what's a really encouraging loss. I think most South, South Carolina fans are actually really encouraged by that loss. They were competitive in that game for a long time. I mean, a long time. Down 11 at halftime, close down the late third quarter. Will Muschamp is just a true wild card. If he was a different coach, I'd say I expect South Carolina to get within this. Barry, I, mean, I don't know what do you do with this, Allen. I guess I take South Carolina and 10 whole points, basically 9.5. I, I honestly have no idea. I here. do think it's going to be close. That 9.5 number is too high for me. I would like to pick Missouri, but South Carolina does tend to keep it close in whatever game they're in. All right, number 10, Utah, minus four at USC. This might be my curious line of yes. the week. And, and by the way, almost all the curious lines last week wound up not being curious. They were on the money. Like, they nailed it for the most part. You're looking like, wow, that team's going to blow them out. No, they lost or whatever happened. So here you are again. Utah crushes BYU in game one. Looks great in every game they played. USC will look to be a great win against Stanford. Looks like Stanford's now not good. So Utah travels to USC after losing to the team that they beat at BYU by 18 points, and they only get favored by four, Allen? Yeah, you're right. The, whenever it's this curious, it makes me go, mm, what does Vegas know that we don't know? But this feels like the safest bet on the board to me. I'm I definitely taking Utah. Agreed. I feel like you got to go Utah here for sure. All right, number four, LSU, minus 23 at Vandy. This is only on here because Vandy, weird kind of game. LSU is about to get into a very interesting portion of their schedule. They're riding really, really high. Vandy 10 play sometimes, teams close. I'm taking LSU here because I think LSU is for real, and this is what a for real team would do is they'd put away a team like Vanderbilt. Agreed. And if, if Vanderbilt's closer than that, that that's a heat check for LSU there. Number 11, Michigan. At number 13, Wisconsin. Wisconsin favored by three. Wisconsin was a team I thought was a little fraudulent this year. And all they've done is come out and basically play perfect football. Admittedly against almost no one. 
Michigan looks like a train wreck and a disaster. And I'm going to go with Michigan to win this game Whoa. as a train wreck and disaster outright because I feel like Wisconsin is still a little fraudulent. And Michigan is fraudulent. This is two fraudulent teams in my opinion. However, I reserve the right to say that I will eat my words if Wisconsin comes out and smashes Michigan. If it's a close game, maybe it still proves they're fraudulent. But Michigan is going to waste a tremendous amount of talent. They're more talented than Wisconsin. They play a similar kind of game. I'm excited to watch this game because of the storylines I gave you, but I'm taking Michigan to uh, win outright. Okay, I'm going to take Wisconsin given three there for sure. And again, I would not be surprised if Michigan won. That There's an interesting path for both of these teams, but I, I got to take Wisconsin at home. This is a wild line to me. Number 23, Cal, who's played very well, traveling all the way to Oxford, Mississippi to play Ole Miss. Ole Miss favored by one and a half. Look, Vegas respects my guy, okay. Matt Luke. <laughs> They know. They know they what don't. he can do. And obviously, I'm not going to bet against Matt Luke. I expect Ole Miss. I'm taking I'm taking Ole Miss to cover that. Uh, yeah. Um, Cal's defense is legit. I'm going to take Cal here for sure. Again, uh, you know what? Matt Luke might surprise me. We'll see. Number eight, Auburn at number 17, Texas A&M. Texas A&M favored by three and a half. Kellen Mond. The whole game hinges on Kellen Mond. If A&M had a quarterback right now. I think they're a top five team, maybe even a top three team. Honestly, they don't. I I don't trust Kellen Mond at all. I don't trust Auburn at all. (laughs) I trust Jimbo Fisher more than I trust anyone on Auburn. So I'm going to take A&M in the points. But three and a half seems like just the right number to where I don't know which way to go. I think the game will be close. I'm going to take A&M because they're at home and they got Jimbo, but I don't like it. I'm going to take Auburn. This is a... This is a higher gush here. I'm going to ride that until it drops. Okay, number 22, Washington, favored by six against BYU. BYU on our list again here. Man, can I be a BYU fan? The schedule they have played Fighting is Mormons. incredible. Yeah, crazy. Right? They play ranked Utah. They go at Tennessee. They play ranked USC. Now they play ranked Washington. Dream. Dream schedule. I feel like at this point in time, how many how many BYU tricks are left up their sleeve? But ride the hot train till it goes away. Washington has not looked great. I'm gonna take BYU here in the six points they're giving me at home. Interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna take Washington a little more stable. I think Oklahoma State travels to number twelve Texas. Texas only favored by five and a half. This goes to the Vegas formula of, of history being the most important, which we talked about with Kentucky. Which, by the way, they were right. Clearly, clearly Hammond obviously knew that he needed to cover that spread for Gator fans, and he, he scored. Go. I forgot to mention that. But here we are with one that looks like insane to me. Like Texas, you got to win by more than that. I'm going to take Texas there, but I know they've played close in the past. I think this is going to be a close game, but five and a half is low enough that I'll take Texas. Number seven, Notre Dame at number three, Georgia. This is a headline, headline game. Maybe a line that's surprising people. Maybe not. I don't know. Georgia favored right now by 13 and a half. First of all, what a great game. I love I loved watching this when it was in South Bend. Yes, I'm going to love it again. The atmosphere is going to be amazing. I love these games. I love SEC welcoming big major schools like this. There's like this chip on our shoulder to show them how rowdy and crazy and intense our fans are. I can't wait. When I saw the line, I thought to myself, that's about right. And I thought that because Notre Dame has, again, it's history. Everything is history. Has just gotten annihilated by schools that have superior talent. If you look at the composite, UGA's talent is much, much better than Notre Dame's, and they're playing at home. It's an emotional game. I just don't believe in Brian Kelly's Notre Dame teams in big games until they prove it to me. I believe in Kirby Smarts. I mean, he's a hair trigger away from winning a national title once or twice. I'm going to take Notre Dame in a two-touchdown cover here. I mean, Notre Dame. Did I say that? No, I'm taking Georgia in a touchdown cover here. 
I'm tempted to take Notre Dame. I, I feel like this is going to be a close game, closer than like a Georgia blowout. That 13 and a half is small enough. I think that Georgia maybe puts one up on the board late and actually covers this game. I'm excited to watch it either way. Uh, are you pulling for Georgia in this game or are you pulling for Notre Dame? I cannot pull from Notre Dame. I grew up a Miami Hurricane fan. I have a healthy dislike for Notre Dame. So, therefore, I have a healthy dislike for Georgia, too. I, I have kind a, of I have a healthy... of them to win, but in this case, I just I, my childhood memories of Notre Dame are much more negative than my memories of Georgia. I think normally I would feel like, okay, Georgia, I want to see them defend the SEC pride a little bit. But I like, I've always had a nice taste for Notre Dame. Um, so, I'm going to be pulling for the Irish in this one. We'll see what happens. I think the le- it's less pressure on like, oh, we got to ride or die for SEC. Okay, some other items here. I, I just want to mention this. If Maybe this um, didn't come across your desk, but uh, former Gators linebacker uh, Neuron Ball died um, this past week after a battle that knows it. I mean, had a really amazing story. Looked like he wasn't going to be able to play football. Ended up playing really well for the Gators. Played in the NFL and died at age 27. It's a really sad story uh you saw a lot of his former teammates um say some really kind really amazing things about him as a friend as a teammate he was extremely beloved around the gator program i couldn't help but think about him on saturday he wore number 11 saw kyle trask come in the game wearing number 11 so thought about him a little bit um so sad um moment for gator nation but um you know, chance to celebrate his life a little bit and the impact he had on people. So I'm sure the people around her are thankful for the time that they have with him. Yeah, definitely a sad story. The brain aneurysm that put him into a coma, some really rare, like blood vessel disease that he had. So his family, uh, you know, a lot of nice tributes there, and and, a, and the Gator family. It's nice when the Gator Nation takes care of its own and has these has these comments. At the end of the day, although we're doing analytics in the podcast, or we're talking about players, or we're breaking down, we break down Allen, there's humans behind each one of these guys. And certainly you wish every one of these men success in their lives, much more so than success in the football field, which we get to selfishly kind of watch as entertainment. You know, the entertainers, so to speak, are humans too, and they have real lives that, that merit, you know, all the care we can give them. And with that, we're going to bring a close to this episode. We're super excited about this weekend's action we hope you are as well. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. As always, any feedback you have fired off to us, we will respond. You can email it to us. You can tweet at us. You can Facebook us. You can hit us up on Patreon. You can give us a dono. You can do a million different things. We will interact with you in all of those ways. We will be back next week. We will break down all of the game action, not only from our game, but also from around the country. Until then, go Gators. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? 
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.